Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm your host, Jason Dubray, and uh, today I get to talk about uh, the wild and crazy Nicolas Cage in uh, an actor masterclass episode, uh, and I'm excited to have Carmelita Valdez-McCoy back. Um, this is your fourth appearance on the show. Uh, last time we heard from you, though, you were on uh, the 50th episode in one segment for that, but I think the last time... We did a full episode with the Ridley Scott show. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for having me back, Jason. I'm yeah, so happy well, to be back. back. That, I mean, that Ridley Scott show, I always kind of go back to that one. I think that's, I you know, you get a good feeling about an episode, even after when editing and, and afterwards. I think that's that's been one of my favorite episodes uh, in the history of the show. So really happy to have you back. Um, it, it, it's interesting. Before I even met you, I kind of thought if this person agrees to be on my show, I have this Nicolas Cage episode, and I feel like this was made for Carmelita because <laughs> time and time again, I would hear, it was actually the Mandy episode uh, on Film Feast that I listened to that led me to just, as a complete stranger, ask you if you were willing to guest on my show. And um, and then what led to, to asking or bringing this one up again was uh, you were, uh, I believe it was the Lost Boys episode on Film Feast. Mm -hmm. And at the end, Matt has you rank your favorite. It was Joel Schumacher movies, and you brought up Eight uh, Millimeter, who I, I a film I think that's kind of lost. And it was lost in the crowded 1999 field of movies, and not a lot of people have seen it now. And you you said somebody out there in podcast <laughs> land, please invite me on to talk about Eight Millimeter. And I was like. I need to jump on this because I know how many <laughs> podcasts you are on. I need to have Armelita on to talk about this because it sounds like, I don't know, when we actually get to the details of it, maybe we'll be in different places, but it uh, sounds like you have the same feelings for it that I do, that I, I, I saw it in theaters when it first came out and it's always stayed with me. So, uh, And then it's an excuse to talk about some other Nicolas Cage movies. But I should probably start off by saying, though, that this is still kind of more mainstream Nicolas Cage that we're talking about. Uh, you know, there's, we have some pretty weird movies that we're going to be talking about, no doubt about it. Um, but this isn't this isn't quite like Mandy and some some of the other. I, I don't know if independent would be the right word. Mm. He kind of went through a stage where he did a lot of kind of straight. So I'm still using the straight to video term, but like straight to streaming, straight to video. Uh, he's always been working a lot, but there's kind of this stretch that happened where he was getting a lot of Razzie nominations and people were kind of treating him like he's a really awful actor. And now things have kind of come full circle back to this idea that Nicolas Cage is one of our best living actors. So that's, uh, he's had a, he's had an interesting career. So um, I'm just going to start off like, what does, uh, what does Nicolas Cage mean to you? Oh, well. Let me start by saying, yes, the man has made so many movies, a career that spans 40 years. Yeah. There's a book that came out, I think it was last year, or was it earlier this year? Time, it just eludes me these days, like the passage of time. But it's it, the book is called The Age of Cage. And it's it's a study of the last 40 years in film as told through Nicolas Cage's career and kind of charting 
the various uh, changes within the industry and how that and how you can kind of track that through the different phases in Nicolas Cage's yeah. career. It's a great, it's a great read. It's a fast read. It's really interesting, especially I think for those of us who can remember him from his earliest days and have kind of maybe come in and out at certain points of his career. Cause it has fluctuated wildly the different types of movies he's made his his approach has always been though creative i think he's so skilled and talented he has guts and heart he takes big swings and makes really interesting choices sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't He's very much a working actor. He's not just a movie star. He's also a working actor. The man is working to pay the bills. And so, yeah, there's been times where he's taken on projects and I don't know how much of it was he was really interested in the material, how much of it was he needed to be working, maybe a little bit of both, I would imagine. But I think there's always something interesting about what he's doing on screen. And I mean, I'm a huge fan. I'm a really big, I'm a Nicolas Cage fangirl. I yep. will just admit that right out the gate. I just, I love, I love the man. I think yep. he's incredible. And I, I know I have the right person for the job. For the- <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think I remember you mentioning that book and I, it's one of those things where I was like, I need to get that. And then I don't know something happened where I didn't put it on, Amazon or look at my bookstore for that, but I, I want to read that. That it just sounds fascinating. And really it is almost his career is almost the length of my life. You know, I'm a little bit, you know, I I was a few years old when, you know, famously I, I have reviewed Fast Times on Ridgemont High at Ridgemont mm-hmm. High on the show where he snuck on, lied about his age to get on the set to be in the movie when he was Nicholas Coppola and he's only in a a few scenes in the, the film, but I mean, that's uh, how much he wanted to, to act yesterday. I came across, you always, when your phone, you come across these strange headlines and articles. And there was one yesterday um, that said, Nicholas Cage was disappointed to find out he isn't an alien. <laughs> and I, I mean, I am too. Yeah. He apparently, <laughs> when he was a child, he would, he had, was convinced that he was an alien and it wasn't until he had to go to the doctors and get a checkup and realize, Oh no, he, he had the anatomy of a human being that he, before that he thought he was an alien. And I just like, things like this just pop up with Nicholas. I love it. There was was recently an article that was circulating, getting shared on social media. Uh, I can't remember the publication, but if you search John Carpenter interviews Nicolas Cage, I'm sure it'll come up. But it it's an interview. It's a conversation between director John Carpenter and Nicolas Cage. And it is delightful. This was recent, like within the last couple weeks of prior to our recording. And it's really great to hear him talk about films he loves, filmmakers he loves, the craft. He's a really... He's just, he's one of those really original people 
I don't think there's anyone else in the world quite like Nicolas Cage. I think of him as an artist and I think he approaches acting as an art form. And, you know, you'll hear sometimes interviews where he talks about, what is it, nouveau shamanistic acting and and his approach and his philosophy. But you also, what comes through in some of the interviews, like this John Carpenter interview, is that he just, he really loves film. Yes, he does. He's not just, he's not just like there for the job. He really does love it. And I, I think that that comes through. Yeah. And I think if you look for it in his, in the various roles he's played, you can see that coming through. And if, even if it's a financial desperation, he, the man's had, a, there'll be, a, there should be a movie about his life. Uh, you know, I'm sure there will be someday, but I he's hope had so. multiple bankruptcies and different situations. I mean, um, Elvis is a theme throughout some of the movies we're going to be talking about. And then he ended up for a short while marrying, marrying Elvis's daughter. I uh, like he, he said, just all kinds of kind of weird, interesting things happen, but he get, seems to give it his all, even if the yes. material um, is a, it's a paycheck movie where you see some other actors, honestly, you can tell when it's a paycheck movie because they're phoning it in or they're just playing their image. Um, and I guess there is a cage image that's in there and you don't completely, you, you're most cases you're aware that you're looking at Nicolas Cage, but still he, he just makes it exciting and interesting for people people to watch. And I, I I think, you know, all six of these movies have their merits, and I enjoyed all of them. Um, only one of them was a first-time watch for me, and it's one that feels like it shouldn't have been a first-time watch. And it's one that I had not heard very nice things about, so I'll be interested mm. in your take on it. But it was... It was way better than I expected, but I probably went in with super low expectations. So, um, and all the others I had watched, uh, some of them multiple times. So, um, yeah. So we're, I mean, we're looking at a lot of detectives and police officers and Elvis impersonators and the Yellow Brick Road, and you know, uh, it, there's there's a lot of stuff with like parental relationships and the parental effect on the next generation in, in, in these films too. Yeah. Just kind of, a, I, I, hopefully this is a nice enough mix here of, and there's some heavy and there's some, some light in here. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're going to start off, I, I think probably with not, not the cheeriest of the films we're talking about, but um, yeah, Joel Schumacher's uh, 1999 film, uh, eight millimeter. Then we're going to lighten up a little bit with uh 1992's Honeymoon in Vegas. Then we're uh, going to go way back to 1983. I think the oldest of the movies that we're looking at with uh, Valley Girl. Um, then uh, we're going to darken it up a little bit more uh, in a way uh, with uh, Werner Herzog's um, Bad Lieutenant, Court of Call, New Orleans, which is uh, a mouthful of a title for sure. <laughs> then uh, Comic book superhero, and I know there have been uh, two movies for this, but Ghost Rider is, and then the, we're going to end off with David Lynch's Wild at Heart, and um, I believe this is the first time in the history of the program that I'm reviewing a David Lynch film, so uh, I'm really happy to have, have Carmelita along for this one, because David Lynch movies are a lot. and uh, They and, are, they are a lot. Yeah, well, I'm going to tell you. I'm a huge Nicolas Cage fan, but, but 
The man, as we said, has had a very varied career. And so this is a really cool little sampling of different films from different parts of his, you know, different eras of his career and different types of films, romantic comedies, thrillers, a teen movie, uh, you know, a Lynchian kind of art comedy, all types of different things. I will, I'm going to lay my cards out on the table right now and say three of the films I knew, well, two of the films I knew I loved. There was a first time watch for me that I fell in love with. So three of the films I'm like, I'm all in. The other three, not so much. Okay. So we're going to have fun talking about these, I think. Because I, and and that's the thing about Nicolas Cage, right? Like, even if you're not 100% on board or if the finished product isn't really your thing, there is always something to talk about. Something fascinating about his performance or the roles that he chooses or the filmmakers or he chooses to work with. There's always something to dig into. For sure. And uh, yeah, I'm interested because I, I would say my thumb is up and I would recommend all of these movies. But when it comes down to the points, uh, then I, I had to kind of say, okay, which are the ones I really love? Which are the ones that I like, but are not as strong as the other uh, as the other five here. And I think it'll be fairly clear where I stand um, on this, hopefully by the end. But uh, it, it, this will be another interesting. This might be like the Ridley Scott one again, where <laughs> we're not quite sure what goes where, and that that makes it a little bit more more exciting. I think you know sometimes I agree. That, a Hannibal has to leave my movie collection. Sometimes something like that has to happen. So, you know, not a, a bad, awful movie, but it's just in, if you have a good group of movies, then that's, uh, that's what happens here. So but we'll see if at the end we think this is a good group of movies or a good, as you said, a good sampling of Nicolas Cage's career here. This is the mortgage, Cindy's college money. Mm-hmm. If I do right by Mrs. Christian, the circle she runs in, this could be the break we've been waiting for. Can't take more than a couple of weeks. That's all I can tell you, honey. Sometimes you can't know what I'm doing. It's better that way. It's always that way. You come highly recommended, Mr. Wells. You're praised for your discretion. Thank you, ma'am. As you know, my husband passed away recently. Yes. My husband was the only one with the combination to this safe. These were my husband's private things. I didn't. I didn't realize do you want to tell me what you found, Mrs. Christian? Private Detective Tom Wells is one of the only people who has seen it. It is eight millimeters wide. It runs at 16 frames per second. And he has been hired to discover. All I want is to know what this atrocity is false. I want the proof of it. If what's on it is real. Finding the guys who made this film is going to be very difficult. I need information I thought you might be able to help. You name the vice, I name the price. I'm gonna tell you, there's things that you're gonna see that, that you can't unsee. They get in your head and they stay there. Some doors should never be opened. Tom, where are you? 
dance with the devil. The devil don't change. The devil changes you. Because once you go through... No going back. No! Nicholas Cage. I'm trying to understand! Whoever you were, just forget about it. I can't. There's no one left to finish this but me. Eight millimeter. A film by Joel Schumacher. It, it's not very often that I would say that I had been to the movie theater or even at home and I've watched a movie that has traumatized me. I, I would say probably the uh, first time I watched uh, The Exorcist, that was very much my experience. Uh, to this day, it's my favorite horror movie because it, it genuinely scared me. Um, Oddly enough, the same year, 1999, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, a polarizing film for sure. It's one that I was actually quite bothered and disturbed by. Um, but a few months earlier, I saw uh, Joel Schumacher's 8mm, and I was just like, wow, this was dark. I knew it was going to be, and I like, I spent the entire, we've talked about, um, I really like those, like, action thrillers or horror thrillers of the 1990s and just at the end of this decade but this was this was something else and so because i i, I guess i i don't know why it was it was just hit me on on the right day or whatever i was working in a movie theater at the time too and when it came around it was the last run movie theater when eight millimeter had its run i i, it was, I was to the point where i was actually warning people before going in <laughs> and to this day i will never forget it was it must have been an afternoon show maybe it was an early evening show i don't know that this this guy brought in his little kid like i don't know four or five six year old kid to see eight millimeter and i was oh like, no i okay do what you want but i would strongly strongly advise you not to, ignore me and went to the movie anyway and maybe thought i'm just i don't know what but it's just right day right time Essentially, Nicolas Cage, in I, I think one of his most restrained performances. I mean, the, there is some earned Cage rage at, in a few scenes there, and I don't feel that it's too much or over the top. Uh, he takes the material very serious, um, which, which is important. If he didn't, it, I don't, I don't, I think it'd be disrespectful almost. But he's a private investigator who's hired to discover if this super rich man's uh, this snuff film that's been discovered in his uh, personal materials is an authentic snuff film or if this was something done with actors. And this leads him to go deep, deep, deep into the underground world of pornography in um, initially Los Angeles and in, in New York, but also the small town where when he kind of figures out who this, this girl is who's part of this... Uh, film um and meeting her mother and and, and those pieces and I, I think all of it works super well this is a to me if i ever had an like an underappreciated movie festival that i could put on somewhere eight millimeter would be front and center because i think more people need to see it but i think it's it's a movie for adults i i i would have trouble 
recommending it to a, a broader range of people. And I know people become very de desensitized to sex and violence and that kind of thing in the 20 some years since this came out. But I still think it, it hits hard and I, um, I appreciate it for that. And so I'm an enormous fan of eight millimeter and I sense that you are as well. I am too. Yeah. So I'm so happy that you answered the call that I put out on Film Feast looking for someone who would talk about 8mm with me. Because I've been championing this movie since it came out. You know, at the time we would rent it and I, you know, sit down with all my friends and watch it. And I, I've always loved this movie. Yeah. And it is dark. No question about it. There are, you know, a younger audience not ready for this. No. Wait till you're wait till you're grown up. Uh for some people who are more sensitive to to certain subjects like sexual violence, this might be a hard watch. Uh -huh. Something to either be go in very prepared for that or avoid. But I think that this film to your point, a great restrained, subdued performance from Nicolas Cage. He is taking this seriously. And there's a lot that he's doing with his facial expressions. And 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 then he it builds as the character of Wells becomes more and more entrenched in the search for, for justice and the truth. And, and as he becomes more emotionally involved in in the fate of the young woman he's seen on this film, you know, he becomes more animated and you get, you know, some rage towards the end of the film and it feels earned. Yeah. He's justifiably angry because of the things that he's seen. And I, I would be curious for a first time viewer seeing it now, how, how it would hit. And I, and I think maybe one of the reasons why this film gets such a strong reaction is that this is before the proliferation of internet pornography. And so everything is very tactile and tangible. Like he has to go into a physical basement shop and you touch a physical movie uh -huh. and you see that it's like, you know, when they go into some of these seedier places, you get that grimy, sleazy feeling in a way that you don't if you're just clicking on a website so I, I think that's something about this film I think too you get and and this was I think one of the reasons why this film is underappreciated is that it lives in the shadow of seven it does same same writer too Andrew same writer yeah hey, this was his and, almost his follow-up screenplay to seven right. I believe yeah yeah. And, you know, nothing was going to quite match Seven. Seven was a game changer. That was something we had never seen before. And it really stands alone. And after that, a lot of films wanted to have a similar feel and kind of go to some of those darker places. And I think given that this was the same writer, I think maybe the expectations hurt this film. I think, too, because it was like on the cusp of technology, it's like the end of the 90s. It's only a few short years from there that everyone has cell phones and internet porn becomes a thing that's widely uh -huh. accessible. And, and so I think it became, it, it got dated more quickly than it would have 
if it weren't in that time period of the late 90s. But I I think what I love about it is his performance, the pairing of Nicolas Cage with Joaquin Phoenix, because yes. I'm also a big fan of Joaquin Phoenix. Uh-huh. And these two together in this film, a great rapport, this kind of buddy detectives. <laughs> it's it's just, uh-huh. it's it's really cool. And, and you, a lot of other great performances too. James Gandolfini. Oh, and may he rest in peace. And I, did, I don't know. There's, there, there's something like if, if you're gonna get me weepy about a a guy who died too soon, it's it's Gandolfini. And, yeah. And this was this came out about the time that The Sopranos first season premiered on HBO. Mm. So he was about to. People knew his face. Is it True Romance and um, and uh, a Civil Action and, and movies like that. He was that one of those that guy actors, and he was about to explode into, you know, one of the most important television actors. And I had hoped one of the most important cinematic actors, and he just didn't, unfortunately, have enough time after The Sopranos to to get into that, you know, the godlike Robert De Niro, uh, Pacino type of territory because I feel like he was on the road to that because he was so good, and yeah, he's. Like he's nasty. He is a he is a sleazy character in this film. Like he was apparently the sweetest man on God's green earth, and he played all of these horrible uh, criminal and na- nasty characters, um, and somehow could find that in himself there. But yeah, he the way he talks about and treats women and the things that he says, um, and yeah, that's that's an just amazing scene he has with with Cage towards the end of his run in the oh, film. It's so oh. good. The two of them so facing off and giving it their all, all the energy in their performances in this scene with just the two of them. It's amazing. Yeah. We have Dormare in this film. And yes. he's great. Also another slinky, sleazy yeah. character. And seeing him play off of Nicolas Cage. And Joaquin Phoenix, it's it's a great cast. It's very mem- there's a lot of very memorable things about this movie, like scenes that once you see them, you cannot unsee them. Nope. Nope. <laughs> and 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 the kind of at the conclusion, as he's he's really getting to the truth and the re- you know the things that are revealed to him and and the way that they're revealed to the audience is like jaw-dropping the first time it is like you think it's one thing and it just becomes so much more than what you expect and i think that's what i just so reacted to and i guess being you know a sweet and sensitive young guy as i was to just kind of watching characters who just have no regard for human life you know and are just kind of laughing about it and saying the most horrible things. I think that really got to me. It, it, it mm. still gets to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, as I've gotten older, I've seen more acts of inhumanity in the world and I've built up more of that, but where it doesn't have that effect where I'm like having to like, okay, I'm going to be taking a day off work because I've, you know, because I'm so, uh, so, so bothered Affected. by the movie. But it, I still think it it has an impact. I mean, it, it's still 
works away. And like for me again, um, being a little bit older, I don't have children, but I have a young niece. And so when, when Cage comes home and his wife played by Catherine, Catherine Keener, just before she struck at big two and being John Malkovich came out that, that same year. So she was about a half, a half a year from getting her, her first Oscar nomination there. And just, he comes home to his daughter and he sees what's happened to this other girl. And you could just, all those feelings, like I can feel those things now. That's, that's a little bit more my, my reaction to it now where I, still get kind of choked up about it so that means it's it's still a very good film I, and Schumacher who's just had such a I, I don't know people have been so hard on that guy and I think he's just mm. a, yeah if he hadn't have done a couple movies and I certain Batman and Robin would be the, you know the most obvious one uh I think you would say like he he was just a, a really solid director I mean I think about this a movie uh another one nobody talks about uh, phone booth where he mm-hmm. finds his main character into a into a phone booth which I mean is almost an unheard of thing now he can't find them anywhere now and that de- de- immediately that dated that, that movie for sure but uh, the fact that he's that good a director that he can keep it in kind of one location and still build up that much suspense he was he was very good and um I, I think if, if a movie like eight millimeter had been given more of a chance, there might've been a different story written about him. You know, I think a lot of us, I, I heard you on, uh, on that lost boys podcast, really uh, you and Matt both kind of defending him um, a bit and saying, you know, he's, he just, you know, he, he made some great films. He did. He did. I mean, yeah. The, if you make that many films, you're going to have some bad ones and you're going to have some, Good ones and some ones in between there. And so absolutely eight millimeter. I, I, I believe you had it as number one when you were doing your ranking there. And uh, it was, or was it two? It would think it was number two, Sorry, but yeah. I, I always, I always flip flop. It was between that and Tigerland. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's one I've never seen. That's one when I heard oh. that I, was like, I need to check that one out. Highly recommend it. Yeah. So yeah, fit, fair enough there. So I haven't seen that one. So I think it's fair enough for me to say eight millimeters, my favorite of his films. Um, but falling down another one I talked about too. That, I mean, yeah. you know, and, and another one that I don't think was it's talked about enough. I mean, there's a lot to that film as well, but anyway, the, I'm getting a little bit off track about a celebration. Of <laughs> um, I, I guess as, as I do, um, if I'm going to be, singing the praises of a movie, I have to come up with some things that I see are, are um, maybe problematic. And this time I was like really kind of going through and um, being picky as I do. I, Peter Stormer gives a great performance, but I think it was very, a little bit more obvious casting because Mm. always plays some version. This was a particularly slimy and evil character he was playing, which he's played a lot of them. But that might have been a little bit on the nose as far as like character actor casting. That's fair. Um, but you know, again, nothing wrong with his performance. Just as far as I see that guy in the movie, it's like okay, yeah, he. But he's a villain from the beginning. It's so obvious. We don't need to. There isn't like we're trying to be tricked by uh, by him. Some spoilers. I mean, there's there's a a lawyer character that's introduced early on, mm. played by another one of that. That guy actors, a character actor, uh, it's like, oh, he was in Silence of the Lambs. 
he's not getting <laughs> there for one scene being the supportive lawyer for, you know, so we, we get a bit of a, I, I think that's less of a gotcha moment. Um, mm. Then if, I guess if people didn't know who he was before and they might have been surprised by that, but that was a little bit kind of, a little bit formulaic, I suppose, when that reveal happens before a really awesome scene that, um, awesome kind of violent, horrible scene that, that goes on right after that. But the, I guess the last one, this has been being super, super picky. Um, but I mean, like, I, and, I, and I like that we kind of, we, we feel like we're reaching the end of the film, but no, there's one more guy to get, you know, and, mm -hmm. and the, the only flaw, because that leads to such a tense, I was on the edge of my seat during the, like this, this sequence in the house towards the end. Um, and I just was not sure what was, I, I kind of knew what was going to happen, but even then it was still kind of an unpredictable way it was laid out there. Um, very, very dark, but I don't know if a guy just randomly calls the hospital and says, I'm a police officer. Can you give me the address of a patient you just had? <laughs> they would give all of that information over the phone. I think we're late in the film and we don't have time to kind of do some sort of an act where he goes into the hospital and does so it was just probably to save time. But yeah, that was that was a little bit of a okay, it was a little bit too easy to get figure out where where this guy lives. But that's all I have. Yeah, and it's this is a movie I love, but I I, I don't I can't ever say I enjoy it or it's a mm. good time. I just and, and it's one I it's not one I'm gonna like pop in every year and You've talked about some movies like that for you, where uh, like there there may be some that you watch when you've prepared yourself for it. I, I it was interesting. I watched this in the middle of of the movies we're talking about, but I was still kind of I didn't want it to be the first one, and I wanted to kind of prepare myself for seeing it again. I was also prepared to be disappointed. I was mm. thought, maybe yeah, my, it's been a while. My memory of this is a lot bigger and greater than, but I it. It, it didn't. I, I don't know. I think this movie holds up. Uh, yeah, sure. You know, Cage and, and Joaquin Phoenix kind of wandering through this underground, um, the, the porno stores and all that stuff. Those are things that don't really exist uh, anymore. Maybe the underground world, with the illegal stuff does exist. I, I really don't know that much about it. I don't really want to explore. <laughs> you don't really want to find out? Not myself. Um, but I... It, yeah, that might seem a little bit dated, but I don't. I still think we can show this to a modern audience, and they're going to get something out of it. I mean, there were the when I first watched Taxi Drivers. There's the scene in the the porno movie theater, which absolutely. When I was watching it; those had closed up, uh, and I was still found things very kind of interesting and disturbing. In the same way, I feel about this film with Taxi Drivers. So. Uh, you know, I, I think we're, we're mentioning some movies that I, to me, are, are the highest praise I can give a film, but yet it's its own thing and its own kind of blip in a, a great year of 1999. And I, it was on my 10 favorites list because I'm a nerd and I do that. And and, <laughs> and, um, and I, I still think today I would put it on my 10 favorites uh, list of 1999. So that makes my heart so happy. Because, you know, this film doesn't get talked about much. And so when someone talks about it and then also really appreciates the movie, that always makes me happy. Yeah, if I had a, you know, fair's fair. If I 
want to pick out something that I think could have been done better or didn't really work for me. I, I do think that Wells's wife, the dialogue that Keener is given and, and what they're asking her to do for this character, it's kind of the trope of the, the, the wife of a law enforcement or official or detective who's always nagging and complaining that he's never home and complaining about the job. They don't really give her anything else to do. She kind of threatens him at points that yeah, uh, ultimatums. Yeah. And we, might, we might not be home when you come back, or like this extra layer of of obstacle and and stress for him at yeah time. Yeah, it's it's, it's like all that it's all they give her to do. That we don't get yeah. any more development from her, and I I can see where the character having a family. And at the beginning of the film, also, we see that he's kind of struggling with being home with the domestic life. It you, you kind of pick up on it's difficult for him. He's a little maybe bored. And, and so I can see where that family plot line, that kind of side plot, helps to inform the character. But I, I do wish that they they'd given they'd given the character of his wife something more meaty yeah like the purpose of him having this baby and it's a daughter like i think all of that is you know that makes sense but i agree with you i like and it's nothing katherine keener is doing her no her, her best and uh with it but i would agree like <laughs> excuse me if we were at just a little bit more complexity um i'm thinking in some ways of uh, i mean completely different movie like Donnie Brasco and Anne mm. and H. Like, yeah. She's, she's given some moments at least and given a little bit more to do, even though it is that, that archetype of a character because he, you know, what's he going to do? He's not going to come home and tell, nor can he tell her all of this and unlift that burden. And that's, that's just kind of the nature of, of, of that. And that's the dynamic they set up in these movies. But, yeah, I think they're. I, I I agree with you. That is something that could um, could be improved. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the that's the one thing that really sticks out to me. Yeah, it's like eh, I haven't seen a perfect movie yet, so uh, no. This this one's this one's pretty pretty close to achieving what it is intending to do. And yeah, I, I think we're. I don't think this one has to worry about points at the end. I don't think so. Jack, if I go. I want you to make me a promise that you'll always love me. Of course, Mom. And you'll never get married. I need a commitment. I want to be married. I can't walk out. Jack Singer has made his decision. Let's just do it. Get on a plane, go to Vegas, and do it. Now. Jack is going to get married. You're serious? I must be. My legs are paralyzed. But a funny thing happened on the way to the wedding. Sorry, man. Straight flush to the jack. To the queen. Wise men say. Yo, Tommy Coleman, $65,000. Only fools rush in. Eddie, you have a solution? I do. I want your girlfriend for the weekend. You brought me to Las Vegas and you turned me into a hooker, Jack? I'll be a perfect gentleman. He's taking me to Hawaii. No! No! Oh, 
address is near Kapa'a'a. Is it Kapa'a'a or Kapa'a'a? If you want to leave, believe me, I understand. Is it AAA or AA? It's just a little overwhelming, you know, to be pursued like this. What about near where Don Ho or Jack Lord lives? That must be a pretty good neighborhood. Boy, the women, when they come here, oh, they get crazy. They like freaky freaky all night long. No one ever was as crazy about you as I am. Well, that's just so wonderful to hear. Let's just fly to Vegas and get married and go on with our lives. Just get me anywhere where I can get a connecting flight to Las Vegas. Las Vegas, anybody? Come on, hop aboard. We're the flying elves of Utah, Jack. The king may be dead, but Jack Singer's not far behind. Listen, if you could just drop me. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll sure drop you. Honeymoon in Vegas. <laughs> Mentioned this strange nostalgia for 8mm a moment ago. I, I have this nostalgia, I guess, for 1992 in general. I, I haven't actually produced any of these shows, but I have like about four shows just about 1992, and we're now 30 years past in there. And uh, I was just kind of 1991 is when I solidified myself as a movie nerd, but it was the full year of 1992 where I was paying attention to every movie. I had the newspaper out to the entertainment section every Friday. What's come out? What do I want to see? And I was uh, excited about every movie that came out that summer. And in the summer of 1992, Honeymoon in Vegas came out. Uh, and I, I believe this was the first Nicolas Cage movie I ever saw. And everybody was talking about this romantic comedy and how great Nicolas Cage is in this performance. And it was the first time I had heard of or, or seen Sarah Jessica Parker. I had, however, heard of James Caan because of The Godfather and Misery and some movies like that. So um, so I was familiar. And, and then later, Mr. Miyagi shows up in the movie, too. So, of course, I had watched The Karate Kid. So I was familiar with some of the actors, but not others. Um, and I... I remember watching it. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I saw it on, on video and just enjoying it as a light, entertaining, romantic comedy. This is another one where I went in thinking, okay, where am I going to be at with this movie after a few years? I, I remember I watched it at some point, I don't know how many, five years ago or something, just randomly. Uh, so I had seen it more recently than some other movies. Um, but going in and like taking notes and, and reviewing it is kind of a different thing. So I will start off by recognizing that this is, you know, not the most original movie that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> it's very light summer fair. This is one that um, probably of the list of movies we're talking about. This is one I can watch with my mom uh, and and she will enjoy it. And she's a fan of Elvis and uh, you have all those Elvis covers throughout and uh, they just really kind of embrace, I've never been to Las Vegas myself, but embrace the idea of of Vegas. But um, starts off in, in kind of almost a, reminded me a little bit of a, a Moonstruck type of a scene with Anne Bancroft yeah. as Cage's mother on her deathbed. And she never wants her son to ever marry because she only wants to be forever the only uh, the only woman that he's ever loved and almost like the idea is almost like he's cursing. Uh, she's cursing him with this. And so he, he strings along Sarah Jessica Parker and in this committed relationship 
And finally, is just and, and enough. Let's go to Vegas. Let's get married this weekend. And they're going to get married, but he little does he know, or just Sarah Jessica Parker know, uh, James Kahn, who's a big shot gangster type. Again, a little bit of a, you know typecasting, I suppose, with that. But uh, and he sees Sarah Jessica Parker, and she just happens to remind him of his uh, deceased wife. And so he comes up with a, a plan to steal her from from Cage uh, by setting up this uh, hotel-sponsored poker game where then, of course, uh, Cage participates in instead of going immediately and going and getting married. And then he, he loses this, this bet, which is essentially as horrible as it sounds, is that his you know, uh, that Sarah Jessica Parker has to go and spend the weekend with James Caan and he then takes her to Hawaii and, and then Cage kind of comes to his senses and starts doing, going all over the country and trying to track them down and trying to win her back. And that's, that's the film. Uh, and I think I am, probably being super generous to this movie and when the points come around i'll be super generous but i i still have to say like it, it's a harmless movie i think for its target audience it's successful i think the actors do a good job they have a bit of fun with it uh the concept is very dated uh 30 years later for sure. there's, there's actually like i mean they to their credit sarah jessica parker has her character has some moments where she stands up to James Caan and there's he's conflicted about different things but it, it is it is kind of like the light romantic comedy version of Indecent Proposal that we're looking at yeah. another another 90s film um, and yeah so that I, I think it would be easy to cross your arms and wag, wag your finger at this film but I'm just going to take it for what it was and what it was meant to be in 1992 and I had enough fun with it. By the end, I was thinking, okay, I, you know, am I going to lose credibility here? I'm, I'm still going <laughs> to give it a recommendation, and I still have a soft spot for it. And for the nostalgia of this 1992 magical year where I was trying to see every movie I possibly could, and this was one of them. So there were, that's where I stand with Honeymoon in <laughs> Vegas. I, 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 mean, I was very curious about what you think about this one. Oh, my friends. <laughs> so... I mean, I think it's it's common knowledge. I'm not a romantic comedy kind of person. Yeah. Romantic comedies are not my thing. So I I think I I went into this, I wanted to be kind of as open-minded as possible. Cause I had seen, you know, this is one like I would catch little bits and pieces on TV, but I never sat down to watch it from start to finish. Cause again. Yeah romantic comedies aren't my thing so yeah. but i was i was aware really the only thing that i remembered about this prior to watching it um in preparation for our discussion was the flying elvises like that was the only yes. thing i remembered and yeah. i love the flying elvises let me just say you have a fun sequence isn't it <laughs> it is a fun sequence and a weird climax for the film but it's fun. it is it but that i mean that sequence is is I would say for me was the most enjoyable part of the film. I also think there's some great landscapes in here, the locations in Hawaii, 
seeing Vegas in this era that will never, it will never be that again. And so I always enjoy seeing Vegas in movies at various points in history because it's, it's a city that continues to change and it looks nothing like it did then. And it keeps evolving. And I was actually thinking when I was watching this, that it's, it's actually been quite a, you know, it's been some years since the last time I was in Vegas. I've been several times and yeah, I don't even know what it looks like anymore. Yeah. Based like on, you know, all, there's just changes off so often. It's kind of like a mix of Broadway and Disney-fied, I think. Is yeah. The it's, it's, and, um, that was the direction it was moving in the last time I was there. Yeah. You could see that the writing the writing was on the wall. That this that's was kind where of post-mafia post run Vegas, uh, yeah. but kind of cheesy Vegas, like you know, uh, Wayne Newton. Yes. Vegas, and like, uh, these, these kind of the stars of a different generation that were, you weren't getting like the Adele showing up and doing, no, 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 no. No. At, at this time that was, that was, that's a bit later on, but like the, the, the worship of Elvis and these, you know, fly by night marriages and all, all those pieces, like there's something kind of charming about, about, the look of it. I've, and again, I've never been, yeah. so I'm just from a distance and from movies and that kind of thing, my understanding of this evolution of Las Vegas. And this is, yeah, this looked like it kind of was a fun time there, but they're having some, they're making fun of it. They're having a bit of fun at Vegas. They are. Um, and that's know. easy to do. Yeah. It's, it's a very over the top artificial place, the strip anyway. It is of this very entertainment focused. So it you know a lot of it is it's it's in your face over the top. And so it's easy to poke fun at it. And it is and it is kind of funny. But so the, those were the aspects of this that I I did enjoy. I thought everyone was giving a great performance. It's not their fault that so many of the characters in this film are infuriating. <laughs> I was just sitting there watching this movie thinking, I don't want Betsy, Sarah Jessica Parker's character, to end up with either of these guys. They're yeah. both assholes. I don't want I don't want her. They are. They, she they should are. just yeah. leave on her own. You don't need it. The premise of this movie is wild. And I think that's, I mean, that's part, that's part of the romantic comedy thing, you know, is that there's romance and the comedy comes from some of the kind of crazy wild ways that people meet or that their relationships come into crisis. Like that's kind of how these movies work. It's the formula. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, the premise is crazy. <laughs> And and it is it's it is like a mashup almost of Moonstruck and Indecent Proposal, interesting mix. Yeah. One thing I will say that I thought was kind of neat is that Nicholas Cage's character. It would be really easy for it to just be that he's afraid of commitment in that normal kind of average way we think of afraid of commitment. In his case his mother making this her dying wish and you get the impression they probably had a pretty, she was probably a pretty overbearing uh -huh. figure in his life. 
-hmm. It's like a phobia for him. Yes. He has like a, this very real anxiety and you get the feeling that, and he, and he kind of expresses to Sarah Jessica Parker's character that he does want to marry her. It's just this anxiety that comes up for him. It's going to happen, yeah. So I kind of like that. That made him a little a little more sympathetic than he would have been otherwise if it were just, you know, this guy doesn't want to settle down and, mm -hmm. and he refuses to be honest with her. It seems like in the film, he's been very honest about the fact that his mother's wishes and the way that she expressed them at her death has really traumatized him and that he does love her and he does want to be together. He is committed to her. He just has this irrational fear of hurting his dead mother. <laughs> and I'm kind of impressed they got Anne Bancroft to do that. It would have been one day of shooting to do that. Role. Yeah. And she, I mean, she plays it up, but I, I think a certain amount of it being played up is okay. Like kind of like in yeah. Moonstruck, there's some, over-the-top moments, but they, they it kind of works out. Moonstruck's a better film, obviously. Well, I don't know. Maybe not obviously. <laughs> I don't know if you don't... No, I, I agree. I actually do like yeah. Moonstruck. Yeah. Um, but it's not like this guy's like... Yeah, he's like some sort of a playboy or he's... A, like, he, he would love to. He would love to get married. Um, and, I, and maybe it, it plays a little bit on some sort of like a, a bit of um, a movie cliche about... Uh, this Italian families or something like this and the, the son and the mother relationship and, and a little bit, I guess, Freudian in some ways, but um, yeah, I, I just, I think there's, there's, there's certain charm to it. No doubt between the two, Nicholas Cage is a nicer guy than, than James Caan because just his level of control and manipulation as is, is otherworldly. Um, but somehow I guess I excuse it because I just love James Caan. Like I love James Caan too. <laughs> he's like when when you look at like the fact that I mean we've now he's now died as well too. He didn't make a ton of movies. I mean he was this huge movie star, but he didn't make a ton of movies. And and you know he he was working with Castle Rock there kind of in the early '90s, and this was another Castle Rock uh, production, um, and a little bit a couple of years after Misery. And he was kind of doing some some fun stuff there, but this was well within his wheelhouse. He did kind of a another take, playing a, a comedy gangster a few years later in Mickey Blue Eyes. You know, somehow he can he can get away with this, but when you actually analyze the toxic masculinity in Honeymoon in Vegas, it is off the charts. And uh, it really is. You're, you're right. <laughs> you probably could hold off for between the two guys. Somebody else. There's got to be somebody else uh, out there. But and yeah, and it's interesting. Like this was pre-sex in the city, and people really have had this this time with Sarah Jessica Parker too. Like she's gone through, she's endured in her career. But people have been very hard on her at points. And you know, I think she does a good job with the role that she has. I I might say of the three leads, she might be the weakest of the three. But the character has a couple of moments there where she doesn't kind of just go aw shucks and kind of go along for the ride there. But it, it is kind of, Con has to talk her into going to Hawaii with him. 
he's very manipulative and talks about, oh, my son will be there and his family and all this. Like it's, it's, it's interesting. But then how he kind of gets to this point there where a few days in, he's, he's trying to convince her to forget about Cage and marry him instead. And, and the fact that she gets to this point of considering it and he lies. I mean, you know, it's about how much the, he was, the amount of money he was, uh, he was owed from the poker game and and all that. It's just she 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 seems to believe him right away, and she's yes, trust him. And that's that's where I'm. Again, if I'm going to be super critical on this, I I might say that it's a little bit convenient for the plot there. But I I kind of like this uh, writer director Andrew Bergman. He made a movie uh, I think two years later, once again with Nicolas Cage. Another one that nobody talks about, and I think is a little bit of a, a treasure called "It Could Happen to You." Um, it was it was him and Bridget Fonda and Rosie Perez, and about these two strangers who get this lottery ticket and 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 win win a, a bunch of money. I only saw it once in movie theaters. I saw it because of the actors in it, and and I don't know I don't know if I could find it again if I feel the same way about it. But I, I guess at the time I. You know, you grow up and you become a little bit more. Um, you start to see the formula in, in some of these these comedies, and I certainly see it here. But yeah, nostalgia—we'll call it a nostalgia pick for me. Yeah, this is not this is not as good as Eight Millimeter. I'm never going to say that, or <laughs> or some of the other ones we're going to be talking about. But there's just something in my heart of hearts where I, where I like this one, and I think it's it's better than. A lot of romantic comedies. I, I've seen way, way, way worse than this, you know. And I think the the actors elevate the material too, which helps. So, yeah, no, yeah. I think to your point, this is a film that yes, you could sit your mother or your grandmother down. You could you know watch this with family members and not be embarrassed. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. it it is. And that, you know, that's a that's the romantic comedy thing. This film is is very much of its genre. And I would say, hey, I get it. Sometimes when you know the formula, that's part of what's enjoyable is is that you know what to expect. And when you're in the mood for something light or funny or romantic, you know that a romantic comedy is gonna hit some similar beats. To other romantic comedies you see, there's going to be some parallels. Mm -hmm. You know what to expect. And that can be very comforting and very enjoying. Yeah. And some of us, you know, we can feel that for any genre, really. Like horror movies. There's definitely a formula in oh, a lot yes. of horror movies. Yes. And it's it's knowing what to expect can be very entertaining, very comforting, and enjoyable. So there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, wouldn't, I, I know some people, I have some friends that just put down the entire genre. I, I don't think, I think within that it's, it's a spectrum of excellent to just awful. And that's, we're talking about a slasher movie. We're going to be getting that same thing. So yeah, I think there's a few more pluses and minuses to Honeymoon in Vegas, but I'm not going to say that it changed the world or anything uh, that it, it didn't, but I, I enjoy it nonetheless. Oh, Dagby, how could you? For sure. Besides, it's totally gnarly birth control. <laughs> I can't stand it. Okay, so he's awesome. <laughs> Valley Girl, 
She's out there somewhere. This is the story of a boy from Hollywood who never dreamed the girl he'd want most was down here. Hello. Hello. Who invited you? Oh, wow, you mean you have to be invited? Well, that explains it. What? Well, everyone is dressed for See, if I had been invited, I would have known this was a costume party. Right. <laughs> it's the story of a girl from the valley who never dreamed she'd ever be seen with a boy from over here. It's like I'm not getting out of this car. All right, but when they attack the car, save the radio. So when can I see you again? I'm here with you now. I know. This is the story of Randy and Julie, the way they come together, and the people who try to pull them apart. Like, don't you think they have parties over there? Oh, where? At the zoo? This geek that she's with could scar her for life. God, for life? If you think she's confused, you should see her father. I'm together now. Be right there. Julie's cool. Randy's hot. She's from the valley. He's not. Valley girl. Oh, bitchin', is this in 3D? No, but your face is. I don't know if like to call this a cult classic would be appropriate or not, but I, I feel like in the mix of the 1980s, there were a lot of high school movies. And this was Valley Girl was kind of coming in like the in the shadow of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um which I mentioned before was, you know, when young Nick Cage, Nicholas Coppola at the time, uh, snuck onto that set. Here he got to really show what he could do in 1983's Valley Girl. Uh, it's um, about Julie and a girl from the Valley, as, as the title suggests. Um, she meets Randy, played by Cage. He's a punk from uh, the big bad city in, uh, in Los Angeles, and they're from completely different worlds. And they find love randomly one night at, um, initially it's kind of at the beach, but then at this, at this party. So, and somehow they need to stay together in spite of her trendy and according to the IMDb shallow friends um, who really do not want her to be, they, they prefer that she goes back with her asshole boyfriend, but <laughs> you know, but that's, that's the general premise. And, you know, I had watched this one before. For some reason, I, you know, I, I had watched it and I, I remember the general idea of it, but I didn't remember a whole lot about it. But I had, I guess I was, you know, again, paying a little bit more attention this time. And I really had, had fun with it. I could see why it would be popular in 1983 for those who saw it and why those who like this subgenre of films and very 1980s movies would have a, a, a nice nostalgic feeling for, for Valley Girl. And you know, this Deborah Foreman um, played Julie. Michael Bowen, uh, a favorite of Quentin Tarantino, 
is uh, is Tommy, the acceptable boyfriend, who, I mean, we just, kind of like in Fast Times at Richmond High, things just happen. They They show high school as it is. Like, he goes and has sex with one of her friends, and then they just kind of, you know, don't, it, nothing kind of comes of it. But she's one of the friends who is desperate for Julie to get back with uh, with Randy, or, or get away from Randy and back with Tommy. Um, but, yeah, Michael Bowen, like, he, he's so good at playing that guy and just knowing him a little bit more from Tarantino movies and then seeing him here. Oh, gosh, he, look how young he is. And he, yeah. he's kind of, I wouldn't have, have thought it, but he is perfect for this role based on what he looked like at that time. But he's been kind of a little, he's a little bit more of the outsider and the creep in these Tarantino movies later on. So it's, it's interesting to see where his career has gone, but just sweetness and charm uh, all, all over the place with this one. And Nicolas Cage is, he's acting up a storm, but I think most people, if you're going along with the movie, if you're not going along with the movie, it might be tough. But if you're going along with this, you're going to fall in love with him as much as everybody else does. And, you know, he wasn't, you know, necessarily meant to be the lead, but he became the movie star and the lead in, in this film. So that's where I'm at. I, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. I also wanted to do a shout out to, uh, I, I, I like this director, Martha Coolidge. She didn't, direct a whole lot of movies. I guess the, the other one that she directed was uh, uh, Rambling Rose in 1991 with Laura Dern and Robert Duvall. And uh, yeah, later we're going to be talking about Laura Dern and Diane Ladd, mother, mm-hmm. daughter in, uh, in, in a movie. But so there's, there's all these connections between these films. It's kind of funny, but, um, but, but yeah, uh, I, I, I think she does a, a great job of directing um, this film. It's interesting how many female directors, were behind some of these. It wasn't just John Hughes in the eighties. Uh, that uh, it's Amy Heckerling, of course, with Fast Times at Ridgemont High as well. Um, so I think it's well directed. I think it's enjoyable. I think you could show it to teenagers now, and they would get a kick out of it and seeing, you know, what their parents, I guess, or the parent age is kind of changing a little bit more. Yeah, maybe even older than their parents. Uh, what, what their parties were like and what the relationship dynamics and complications were like for them versus now. So, um, yeah, I mean, gosh, next year it's going to be, it's going to be a 40 year old movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, scary, 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 but yet it feels somehow fresh. I mean, there's something about it and it doesn't pull punch. It's, it's an R rated movie. It's not, uh, it's not, it's cute and sweet, but it's not trying to be cutesy. You know, I think it's trying to be sweet, but I don't think it's trying to be, but it, it, this is not eight millimeter or bad lieutenant or no. heavier ones <laughs> talking about at all. No, I think you could show this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You could show this to people. I mean, some people who have problems with nudity and that kind of thing, maybe that would be the only thing that, that would get them a bit, but that's, that's it. So I was so excited to see this film. Mm-hmm. in the list of films that we were going to discuss. Nice. Because Valley Girl is one of my favorites. Not just one of my favorite teen movies or favorite 80s movies. This is one of my favorite films. Nice. It's a comfort nice. movie for me. I adore it. 
I think, yes, Martha Coolidge does such a fantastic job with this. I think it's great to hear interviews with her talk about the making of this film. You know, that like the studio wanted a teen film and they wanted, you know, something that they could market to teenagers. Because at that point, you know, you had things like Porky's and mm-hmm. Fast Times. And and one of the requirements is that there needed to be some some bare breasts like they, you know because sex sells yeah she found a way to incorporate those things in this film in a way that it doesn't never feels gratuitous no. or like it's shoehorned in like it serves the story and what you get is this this great film about what it's like being a teenager the pressures of of wanting to belong in your friend group and keep them happy and continue to feel like you belong with them. But what do you do when you start to question the things that your friends are about? And maybe uh-huh. you don't always agree and doing what you think is right for you. And and that's always a an important message. I think that's still a very relevant message. Yes. The performances in this are great. And I think these young actors, yeah, young at the time. Uh-huh. Their freshness and their youth and their authenticity gives this feat, this movie a real genuine quality. The the smaller budget that it had meant that they like brought their own clothes from home. <laughs> they didn't have like a big budget for costumes. So a lot of them are like bringing clothes they would actually wear. So it feels like, yeah, this is how teenagers in the 80s would look. And you get these great shots of especially like Hollywood yes. at night in the eighties. It looks, it looks great. It's, you, know, you get this club and, and the band, the Plimsolls is playing and that's the real right. band. Mm-hmm. Um, Josie Cotton at the prom. It's really yeah. Josie Cotton. So yeah. you get the soundtrack to this film is incredible. And yeah, you fall in love with Nicolas Cage's character, Randy, and with Deborah Foreman as Julie. And, and they were really into each other in real life yeah they became very close and started dating so the chemistry is is unreal between these two you want them to be together they're such a good looking adorable couple nicholas cage this is one of my favorite nicholas cage performances he's really funny in this legitimately funny he's got great comedic timing there's parts in this film that i laugh out loud and it's just it's it's one that I can put on and I sing along to the songs in the soundtrack. Yeah. And I get to watch them fall in love all over again. And it just makes my heart all ooey gooey. Mm-hmm. Now, in the interest of being fair, I'll start off with some of the negatives, just because okay. everyone knows that I like live and die by this film, but even I have to admit some of randy's behavior when he's trying to get mm-hmm. julie back yeah. you know nowadays we would say wow randy way to be a stalker and some of that stuff like out of out of the context of the film or if if the tone of this was a little different you would be like ah red flags everywhere yeah and i i could see where if someone were to watch this for the first time now I could see where someone might might be a little put off by some of the, uh, you know, showing up, 
getting in the car when Julie's getting picked up from school and not yes. wanting to leave, yes. sleeping on her front lawn, like stuff like that is that like wild, romantic, crazy stuff that happens in movies that if it happened in real life, you would call the cops. So yeah, we're, we're, we're probably half a step from the movie Fear. Yes. With a spoon and Mark Wahlberg here, if there was a different reaction, whatever it is, yes, type of thing, you know, but absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it, but in, in this in this case, like she started to ignore him for all the wrong reasons. Yes. You know? And yeah. it's that stage of life where, um, where kids are taking their advice from probably the worst people yes. they can take advice from, but the only people they feel safe enough to open up to and talk about things there. There's a lot of fun too with her family, like this. Oh, like her the, hippie her parents family. are hilarious. Oh yeah, it's like the opposite of what um, you would 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 often get. That's like the the daughter's uh, father would be really strict and over the top with like I'm gonna shoot him or something. Like, no, no, this guy he's, he's just kind of like well whatever whoever makes my daughter the most happy. He's very zen. He's very you know, zen. Very zen. <laughs> and, and all that sequence where uh you know trying to get that picture for, for Rob and he's so upset he goes into the into the bathroom and smokes a joint to try to he's so high himself down. <laughs> oh just in the commitment oh. yeah that was oh it's it's just i mean i love uh, all the scenes with the parents it's, it's i will a, say film, yeah yeah. One parent that this movie could probably do without, and this would be one of my other yes, little, oh, little critiques, would be yes. Susie's stepmom and that yes. whole side plot of Susie's stepmom is in competition with young teenage Susie and wants to seduce Skip, Susie's crush. Like, that whole thing. I mean, it it's the kind of thing you, you would have in teen movies from this era. Yes. And so I get why it's in there because it's kind of expected at that time to have these kind of little play it up for laughs. And like a the Stacy's mom as a movie or something like that. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. It's like a sex yeah. comedy thing that was yeah. you know, and, common and, in that time period, but it's a little tacked on. It, it, it is. It's, it's it's almost a full subplot. And we reach the scene where we know that he's in having sex and we 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 assume it's with the stepmother and then we we find out what's what's actually happening and it's kind of oh, okay this isn't the graduate i guess you know but <laughs> but it's, yeah i i feel like that's the same executives that were pressuring martha coolidge to go in that kind of sex movie heavy direction they were probably very happy with that subplot right. that, that that part but yeah it, it's 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 a bit weaker I guess I'm, you know, um, there are a few movies that I, I like more than this that we're going to be talking about, but you know, I feel like this is one I'll keep re revisiting and each time I see it, I'm going to, it's going to grow more and more and I'll be 50, 60 episodes down the road and I'll look back at this one and go, Oh, I should have given more points to Valley girl, but still, I think this was the movie that really, Probably this and Vampire's Kiss were the ones that kind of announced the world. Hey, here's Nicolas Cage. He made the decision to go with Cage as opposed to Coppola because he wanted to do his own thing. He didn't want to kind of ride in on the coattails of uh, Francis Ford Coppola. 
be known as like, you know, making his career based on, uh, you know, his name. And uh, I, there's something I admire about that. And he, he certainly made his name early and that like led up to like when we're getting late in the eighties and we're getting these original unique performances, raising Arizona and into uh, some of the ones we're going to be talking about shortly here. So um, I'm glad this is, I'm, t I'm hitting on a few movies that you really love because that just uh, being able to talk about movies you love is just, uh, it's, it's the best there. And, and this one's still kind of, even though I had seen it before, a little, still a little bit more of a discovery for me because I, I just don't think Valley Girl gets the attention that some of the other 1980s Nicolas Cage performances do. It's one I've always heard about. People will sort of talk about it, but in, I think it should be up there with the Fast Times at Ridgemont High and the Breakfast Clubs and, you know, say anything, movies uh, of that era. And I, I, I like how it, it goes about things. And I, I just think it's a little bit more true and honest about teenagers and what teenagers go through than some of the more cartoonish ones that came out in the 80s that sometimes I have a little bit more of a love-hate relationship with, I guess. Um, sure. This one, this one was, I, I like Fast Times um, at Ridgemont High quite a bit. And I think this is a little bit closer to that in kind of it is. adding some truth with the the fun and the comedic moments to it. And yeah, I, I just think it's, it's a crowd pleaser of a film and again, not perfect, but it is, uh, it is terrific. And I, I sense uh, this one's probably pretty safe too, because I'm guessing that you've, you've uh, yes. stopped some points for <laughs> Put some points aside here for Valley Girl. I just but, like yeah. throwing points at it. Here, take more points. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it so much. Who's that? Please get me out of here. You want me to get wet on account of you? Hey, man, I got on Swiss cotton underpants. I'm gonna drown, sir. Come on, we'll get the time of death from on top. Please. Come on, man. It ain't worth it. You are crazy. Come on. <laughs> you okay? The good news, Terrence, is I'll okay you to return to full duty. The bad news is that you'll be experiencing moderate to severe back pain. Recognition of his leadership and tenacity, Lieutenant Terrence McDonough. This is what we're looking for. His name is Donald Godshaw. You up to this? Why wouldn't I be? Still have problems with your back. You taking medication for it? Only what the doctor prescribes. <sighs> Got any illegal substances on you? Big mistake. Who are you? I'm Dave, the guy you robbed. To make it right, you gotta come up with $50,000. Don't make me look for you, Terrence. You mind stepping outside? I'd like to talk to you. I'm gonna give you a chance to make some money the old-fashioned way. With a cop protecting you. You a crazy mother. <laughs> I took you to a place. It's amazing how much you can get done when you've got a simple purpose guiding you through life. Call my own. Stay against the wall. You can empty your pockets, dump out the handbag. You want a hat? Yes. Where the sun always shines. What are these iguanas doing on my coffee table? Yes. They ain't no iguana. Yeah, there are. 
Ain't no iguana. Where's the 15,000? Put that gun away. Kill all of you. <laughs> to the break of dawn, baby. <laughs> you know the people are friendly there. Do you think these guys care you're a cop? Shoot him again. What fool? His soul's still dancing. Back at home. Okay, so I, I remember when the Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans came out, and I was like, have they done a sequel to the Bad Lieutenant? Like the, <laughs> the NC-17, you know, indie, like, shock the world, Harvey Keitel performance of his lifetime film with Nicolas Cage, but now we're in New Orleans. And uh, this is being directed by uh, Werner Herzog. The like At the time, I knew him a little bit more as a guy who does documentaries, really weird documentaries, and he narrates them, maybe over-narrates them. He's got that very unique-sounding voice. I, I didn't realize at the time that yeah he would show up acting in a lot of different things and, you know, he's ends up in the Mandalorian years later too. And uh, he, he, he's an eccentric fellow and Nicholas Cage is an eccentric fellow. So uh, of course they, they found each other and worked on this. And I, I know right up until the time of release of the film, Werner Herzog did not want this movie to be called the bad Lieutenant Port of call new Orleans. He didn't want bad Lieutenant to be in it at all. As I understand it from the, documentary information you wanted to have a different title but we start off with hurricane katrina happening and a a guy in jail who's drowning and we see two police officers doing a bet to see how long it would take for him to die or something like that and it's uh it's vel kilmer and nicholas cage and and then eventually of course then you know cage jumps in and saves this guy and you're like, okay, they seem like not very nice fellows, but is this really a bad lieutenant? And then we get deeper into the movie. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a bad lieutenant. So uh, Cage plays Terrence Terrence McDonough, and he has he has a slight problem with drugs. I would say he has uh, yeah some pretty huge gambling debts, um, and. He's also an amazing police officer. Despite all of this dysfunction in his life, he is, he is uh, very good at what he does. And there's a murder of five uh, immigrants, all his family, and he is trying to go about solving this crime, but balancing out a whole other set of things here that are going on including taking care of his hooker girlfriend, played by Ava Mendez. Uh, this is one of two movies that um, Nicolas Cage and Ava Mendez are in, <laughs> two completely different films in, in this list. And yeah, he, he, he gets himself into some pretty dangerous situations and tries to find ways to manipulate situations to get out of his gambling debts. And it's, uh, it's, it's very good. I mean, I remember I, I saw it and thought this is, I, I like this a lot, and then there was this point the first time I watched it where I think some things went a little bit big and a little bit off the rails in certain scenes, and then I was like, okay, that turned to like what it could have been great into a very good film, 
and I, I was looking for those things this time, and I guess they didn't bother me as much. I I have a theory that this movie was shot out of sequence. Mm. If you ever hear Nicolas Cage talking about preparing for roles, he has some big ideas. Apparently for Moonstruck, he had this character voice that he wanted to do, uh, and Norman Jewison let him do it a bit, and then kind of said, okay, Nick, this is not going to work for the movie, and reined him in a little bit. Um, there's a few scenes kind of towards the third act of the film where he is speaking in a completely different accent and voice than his character is for 80% of the movie. He's doing this, this kind of a uh, yowza, yowza, yowza. I, I don't, I don't know if I can do it. I, I just really, <laughs> right. you're justice. I, you, you, hopefully you know what I mean where, and I, I think maybe to justify, you could say it's the amount of drugs he's doing at the time is leading him to talk that way. But my thought was he was trying to do maybe some sort of a strange attempt at a New Orleans Cajun accent. And they shot some stuff and they couldn't go back and reshoot it. And so in the film, there's just these these scenes where he's speaking super fast and it's in this different voice. So that both times sort of has taken me out of the movie. But he really goes to some deep, dark places in this one. Um, and he executes it beautifully. And you you find yourself cheering for him. And then you're like, should I be cheering for this guy who stalks couples coming out of a club and to rob them and as an excuse to basically have the guy watch while he has sex with the, you know, with the guy's girlfriend or scene is intense. Yeah. And Oh, the level of acting intensity in there is unparalleled. And to me, it's not, those moments are not over the top. And it's just like this, this is a guy, but I, I, I somehow feel like he's a good guy who has been corrupted. That's still where I'm at. And I do like towards the end of the film where we think he has cleaned up his act, but then we're giving a reminder that, no, this guy is still a bad guy, no matter which way we look at it. But he is a genuine hero. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> times over, and he is getting more and more power in this police department as we go along. So, um, I, I, it's just—it's it, a really interesting film that I haven't watched as many times as the other movies on this list. And so maybe that's why I—it it really kind of moved up for me a little bit more than where I, I thought it was going to be. Coming in, I thought maybe this is going to be the bottom of the list for me. I don't think so, or it might be somewhere in the middle. And it, it is still sort, sort of above the middle for me. But I, I, I think if it was up against another group of five films, this might be like the top the top film that we would be talking about. So um, for me, I'm, I am a big fan of the the bad lieutenant port of call new orleans there's just moments where i'm picky or where i'm being a little bit critical so i won't say this is cage's best performance of the ones we're talking about but he certainly goes for it and he has reasons to go for it and i think it's uh it's a risk and it's an admirable risk that he takes 
and it's also quite well directed as I as I would expect. One other, I, I would say, this might be a big criticism or, or, or not, and you might agree with me or, or you might disagree with me. Val Kilmer, it's kind of got a little bit of a thankless role. Like we see him in a lot of scenes early on. And then he has this scene late in the film when he does something, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And just so he has this moment in there, but you know, I, I just don't think he is given as much to do. And when you have Val Kilmer in your movie, I mean, he's another character to himself and it's kind of tragic what's happened to him with his voice and everything. Now, I mean, that was the scene in Top Gun Maverick that really got to me, of course, uh, you know, spoilers for that movie, but um, very good actor. Have him do something more. Like he really needed to be kind of part of the, the second act and third act plot. He can't sort of disappear for a chunk of the movie and then suddenly show up in this, these random scenes here and there and start doing stuff. So. That that's just one other kind of knock against it for me, where it's I, I really want to love this movie, but I'm I'm not quite there yet. So I, I like it a whole lot. There, nice. I've rambled enough. Go ahead. <laughs> so you gave me the gift of Bad Lieutenant, Port of Carl, New Orleans, because I had not seen this before. And you know, at various times when I'd be like, oh, watch a Nicolas Cage movie I've never seen. And I would come across this title and be like, nah, because the the title, it's a crime. <laughs> the title yes. is a crime against this movie. Yes, it is. Because it does this film no favors to have this hokey title, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, because I, I immediately think like cheap money grab attempt to either remake or do a sequel to bad lieutenant and yeah so i don't know if i ever would have gotten to this one if it hadn't have been for you including it and i love it good good i love this movie i had so much fun watching it i thought I, I do agree with you. I wish Val Kilmer, his role had been bigger or had been used more consistently throughout the film because in that, you know, those, those opening sequences where we're, we're introduced to these, these two cops and I see that it's Nicolas Cage and Val Kilmer. I was so excited to see yeah. them together. Uh, Fair use of bulk is in this very briefly. Yes. I wish her character had come back because I love Fairy Use a Balk. Brad Dorif's in this, and we do get yes. him a little sprinkled throughout, which is nice. Uh, you know, I think Werner Herzog, his his documentary style, he brings some of that here in this really great way because it adds this like gritty realism to the film that I think really works given the subject matter, a corrupt, troubled cop. You know, some of the, some of the scenes, the way the camera work is done, the, the lighting, the color, it feels like you're like right there watching this detective uh -huh. do these awful things, uh -huh. <laughs> really corrupt, bent stuff that this guy's doing. I, I just, 
I got to tell you, I was so impressed with this movie. And, and the fact that Cage's character, although doing all kinds of really terrible things, criminal things, mm -hmm. but also just, just terrible things to other people. <laughs> like, I mean, he, he is lovable. Yeah. Somehow you, you're rooting. For, and I, I, I'm not sure if, and I would say Bad Lieutenant's a better movie. Um, sure. And I don't, I don't think as you're going along, you're necessarily rooting. You're following along with Harvey Keitel, but you're not rooting for him. There's something about Cage, no matter what he's doing, if he's a villain, whatever it is, where you, you just, he's a, a lovable guy. And, and so maybe they, they played on that effectively enough where we're kind of going along and watching these horrible things. And we're just like hoping that he survives all of these many dangers. Like at any moment he could be killed from any number of, of, of people. He plays a super dangerous game throughout and, 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 and very risky, but we're kind of cheering for him to survive. So what he can keep, doing the same thing he's been doing, <laughs> you know, uh, and he has learned a thing about it. I mean, he, the fact that he goes, you know, to, you know, his, his father's place and his father is recovering. Um, and, uh, and he's trying to bring his girlfriend there, but he's trying to bring drugs into that house and, you know, uh, Jennifer Coolidge as well is in, in this this film. She's now like one of the hottest actors around, certainly in television, uh, playing uh, his father's wife, who she's in. She's has a problem with alcohol, but you know, and and then her and Ava Mendes kind of getting five seconds in, getting uh, upset at each other too. I mean, there, there's just some. He knew how to give some kind of nice flashy cameo roles to people. That's, that's what's kind of puzzling about the Val Kilmer thing to me. He's giving Val Kilmer more screen time than some of these other actors, but he's, I guess Kilmer has that kind of interrogation scene. Right. His moment, but, uh, but I just felt like that he was built up to be kind of a more significant character than he ended up being in the movie. So, yeah. Just, no, I'm just, glad you brought up the substance abuse and the alcoholism yeah. in this film. I think it's really well done. I have a personal history of alcoholism yeah. and, and drug abuse in my past. I've been sober now for many years. So I always really appreciate authentic portrayals of what it's like when you're, when you're still living in active addiction. And I think that's one of the really beautiful things about this film is we see, you know, his alcoholic stepmother, his father, who's an alcoholic in recovery uh -huh. and like what their relationship is like living in the same house and trying to reconcile and, how and do you just, live with someone who's an active addiction there, you know, he and his girlfriend, played by Ava Mendez, like their levels of use and how their relationship, a lot of it hinges on their drug use. And once she stays with his dad for a little while, then she starts thinking about getting sober. And that's, you know, that's how these things happen. And I, I think too, that's something about his character that in the, in the early scenes, 
it's kind of jarring how you go from the incident where he saves the inmate yeah. from drowning in a not cuts- heroic way. He's he's given yeah. this as a hero, but he, it's not heroic. No. And it, and it cut and it kind of really it's a, sort of jarring how it cuts to we find out he has an injury. Mm-hmm. So we we don't like it's not really clear at first. And maybe if I rewatch this, maybe it, it would be more clear. Again, this was just my first time. But it's like, okay, how long has he been using now? Like it, it we don't it's hard to tell like how deep is he into this into this lifestyle, but I I just think you know, sometimes when people are strung out, sometimes when people are dependent on substances, like you do things to further your addiction and deep down, you also have good qualities and people that you love and care about and, and you don't want to see little kids get hurt or you, you know, cause it, he does things in this film that shows that he does still have access to that part of himself, yeah. but you know, when you have a daily habit that you need to fill in an addiction that's gnawing at you, like, yeah, people do a lot of things that they might not otherwise do. So I think that that kind of comes through in this film, too. It might be part of the reason why I find myself rooting for him to to make it out of this alive. Because mm-hmm. if he's alive, you know, there's hope for redemption. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe we don't see it in the film, but there's always hope. Yeah, and we can't. <laughs> And we think we have seen it. We really do yeah. think we've seen it. And like, I mean, I just amazed. I I go along with it. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, no, good, good movie for kind of correcting me on that. It's not. It's not a. You know, it's all going to be fixed. It's not that simple. He's yeah, moving to the suburbs with his you know reformed girlfriend and the other two point five kids or whatever, but. A lot of that stuff around a couple more things I want to touch on before we uh, finish here. But what's interesting there when he, he goes to the house and discovers that, that uh, Ava Mendes is working towards being sober, he just looks so disappointed. Like he's angry about it. He's upset about it like that. And that just feels very true. I think there's also a comment being made here about the fact that his father was a, a super successful police officer as well. Very well respected in the force. And now he's really well respected in the force, but they they have the they both have these addiction issues, and I think it's a bit of a comment. I don't think this is an anti-cop movie. Like it would be easy to, to label it as that. I think it's kind of saying this is a this is a super hard job if you are working in a major American city. It's a super hard job no matter where it is, for sure. But it it makes sense that. You know, probably initially the socially acceptable addiction is is alcohol for a lot of these guys, but we're seeing to to try to deal with what they're dealing with on a daily basis with these homicides that they're, they're training to that. Also, as mentioned, kind of getting perhaps addicted through through an injury uh, that maybe is what happened. But you, at first scene, we're, we're not looking at a nice guy. No, <laughs> he isn't a nice guy in the first scene, and I don't think he's a like a, a nice guy in the last scene. But he's like just one of these antiheroes that we're we're cheering for. I just need to get your take on one more thing. Yeah, this maybe me thinking Werner is having a little bit of fun with us or over directing a bit. 
What did you think of the iguana and alligator vision, those shots? I made a note of this, that there were so many reptile shots interspersed. You know, like the first time, I think it was like an alligator. And I was like, yeah, okay, Werner. On the highway or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, get random iguana. My favorite was the iguanas. I, you know, I was so charmed by this film. <laughs> and and knowing that it's Werner Herzog and, and that he is, you know, this eccentric guy. And it's a Nicolas Cage film. I was just like, yes, give me more iguanas. I'm here for whatever reptiles you want to throw into this movie. <laughs> I was totally charmed. And then I guess we also have that one thing where it's the one character's soul is dancing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After that, that rather, you know, drug infused multi murder sequence. It's like really, what am I? What am I watching here for a few? It was we're going to get lynch pretty soon. There are some lynching touches uh, in this, but somehow, somehow I'm not spending too much time questioning it. I'm just going along with it. I, I, I know he has a reason for everything that he does. I, I just, I, I guess the first time I watched it, that was another thing that took me out of the movie more momentarily. And then I'm like spending my time and energy thinking about why is he doing this more than paying attention to what's happening in the film. Um, especially because it's introduced kind of late. It isn't like throughout the film that we're seeing this, like when you see like the, the hyperkinetic Oliver Stone types of films right. where like from the beginning to the end, you're seeing this and then you're, you've gotten yourself used to it once uh, all throughout the film. This is a little bit later on that, you know, we we, we have that scene uh, with Frieza Bulk is, uh, and he's getting into that that fight with the, the, the traffic cop uh, because he's not willing to kind of break the rules for him um, to, to get his um, his bookies. What was his bookies kid or something off of? Uh, yeah. The parking yeah. tickets. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, I think more people should check this out. It seems like the theme of the show. We're, we're mentioning some movies that, you know, that maybe even Nicolas Cage fans haven't seen and should check out. And like even, yeah, this one, don't let the title kind of turn you off. I, I hadn't Ignore the title. It. Forget the title. I, I guess I saw enough reviews at the time when this came out that I wanted to see it no matter what. But I can see why it would have been, I'll skip over that one for you. But I'm glad that, you know, I by doing this, I forced you to watch it. And now you can sort of say, this is a really good movie. Just, yeah, it needed a different title. I don't know why why Herzog wasn't allowed to have a different title for it, but for some reason he wasn't. And, it's you know, criminal. It's uh, criminal. <laughs> Abel Ferreira does make an appearance, uh, uh, this small cameo in the in the film too there. So I, I guess this must have the, the blessing of the, uh, the original uh, – director for for this but yeah i don't i don't think unless i was missing some easter eggs i, I don't this really doesn't have anything to do with the new york one and intentionally so they like it was very there are a lot of religious overtones in the bad lieutenant this one doesn't have any of 
any of that. Yeah, some of the kind of out there stuff was maybe trying to celebrate New Orleans and the ghosts of New Orleans. Like there's, I there was some explanation maybe. of of that, especially post Katrina and trying to celebrate that city. And I think lots of movies and and shows tried to do that after Katrina. I think that maybe to me the most successful one was uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, a, a movie I just absolutely love. But yeah, this one, this one's a cool one. It's kind of like Valley Girl in the way that it. I think the more times I watch it, the more I'm gonna grow to uh, to to love. I'm, I'm just waiting for that that viewing where I'm like, yeah, confirmed. I love this movie. I'm almost there, just not quite there yet. I can't this, wait to revisit this. This yeah. is the film that I'm gonna. It's it's gonna go into my rotation of films that I like to rewatch. I can already nice. tell. Nice. I was just talking about it. I'm like, oh, I want to watch it again. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that. I'm always happy then when somebody just discovers a movie from, that's the advantage, I guess, of doing six, even though it's so time consuming for, for each episode, is that somewhere in there, there's a discovery. I think we both uh, agree that uh, people should check this movie out. Johnny Blaze, no one has ever attempted such a distance before. 300 feet from field go to field go. What's going through your mind right now? You look really good. I got lucky. Luck don't cover it, JP. You got an angel looking after you. Maybe it's something else. All you have to do is sigh. Forget about family. Forget about friends. Forget about love. for as long as you live. I'm not doing it. You have no choice. Story goes that he'll be normal during the day, but at night, in the presence of evil, the rider takes over. You deserve a second chance. Blackheart's coming to create hell on Earth, and you have the power he needs. Stay away from anybody you can use against him. Roxanne. Did you care about me at all? You have to leave now. I'm not going anywhere. Any man who sells his soul for love has the power to change the world. I can smell your fear. I'm gonna take this curse and use it against you. We have this rat chopper. It was all flames and stuff. His face was a skull, and it was on fire. On fire? Looking for someone. I'm the only one who can walk in both worlds. I'm Ghost Rider. You alright? Yeah, I'm good. I feel like my skull's on fire, but I'm good. I'm going to start off by saying I, I guess I'm not really a comic book guy um, and I, I'm not as familiar maybe as I should be with the fandom kind of coming into Ghost Rider but I think I've heard that's a factor here um, 
but I had heard nothing good about Ghost Rider, really. Uh, and this is the one, only one of the six that I hadn't seen before. This was a first-time watch. So that's where maybe I was relieved of any sort of pressure of of thinking that this was going to be, you know, but I'm wanting to give it its day in court and give it a chance. And so I, I guess maybe that's why I, I could say, like, okay, I feel like, given the genre and what they were trying to do, that I think Ghost Rider was successful enough. I I was entertained. I had a good time with it. Uh, I certainly have a large list of criticisms for this movie, um, but my first experience with it wasn't as awful as what I heard about, like, leading to Razzie nominations and this feels like one of those movies where people started to say that Nicolas Cage has lost it or that he's, you know, he's no longer a good actor. Again, none of that was true. And it's taken a little, little while for, you know, to get to the place, place where we were with, uh, with Pig, where he was nearly up for an Academy Award last year for it. And people are, are back to accepting that, yeah, Nicolas Cage is pretty darn good. And I, I, to this point, I haven't seen, I know there's a sequel to Ghost Rider as well. Basically about um, Johnny Blaze, uh, him and his father are, are stunt riders and um, kind of, I guess, these circuses when he's young. And what happens is Johnny discovers, sadly, that his father uh, has cancer and is, is likely dying. And then he comes across this unusual character played, and I just love this casting, Peter Fonda, uh, and he is willing to sell his soul to Peter Fonda, who turns out to be the devil, uh, to save his father so that the cancer is removed, which turns into an immediate dirty trick uh, made by the devil because you shouldn't trust the devil. Uh, even if he comes in the form of Peter Fonda. <laughs> <laughs> and then essentially for eternity, uh, he has to go around and hunt down these sinners. And uh, then he turns into fire and he has a skull face and he uh, finds that he's interacting with uh, great people like Sam Elliott. Something about that man, Sam Elliott if he starts narrating a movie it, it, like Morgan Freeman, I guess I, I'm going to, I'm going to fall for it for a little while just cause there's, you know, it brings back the, the narration of the big Lebowski and other movies like that. So, and then we do get to see him later in the film. And, and so I, I feel like the pieces are all here. I, I might say Ava Mendez and I, you know, I guess I, I didn't mention it with the last movie. I mean, it's a little bit of a thing like she played a hooker with a heart of gold, you know, uh, that she's given a few more things with the addiction pieces there to, to play in, in bad Lieutenant. But I, I'm not sure that that character is as fleshed out as should have been. I mean, getting back to the talk about Catherine Keener in uh, eight millimeter, I think there might've been more depth, depth in that character than there was in Ava Mendez. Who's, you know, the, the number two actor in the film here, but I I was interested enough in the story and I went along with it to give it uh, I it would be a mild thumbs up that the world was not lack of a better term set on fire 
uh, me <laughs> watching Ghost Rider. But I think I've seen worse, and I've seen I've seen worse superhero movies. I'm okay with it. I I suppose I probably need an education on why there's such a hate on for this movie. I don't know if you're going to give me that education or, or what, but I, I would say just looking at the list, I would argue some of these movies aren't as well known. This one's pretty well known. It's probably the the least like of the six movies that were liked of the six movies we're talking about. But is it as bad as its reputation? What do you think? Mm. So it it was hard. It was hard to to come to this one completely open and leave any of my biases <laughs> at the door. And I, so I'm gonna, I'm going to tell you why. My younger brother got into comics when we were kids and and so I would I would read comics with him. Like he'd get a new comic and then we would sit and we'd read them. So I would I would read whatever my brother was reading. And Ghost Rider was one of the comic series that that he got into and and so that I subsequently got introduced to and enjoyed reading. I am not an expert on Ghost Rider. And I you know, I was I was reading the comic at a very specific time for a very limited time, a very limited run. So it's not even that I'm looking for inconsistent, you know, like accuracies, that sort of thing. But I can remember, you know, back when we were reading the comic in the late eighties, early nineties, I remember thinking, I remember, I distinctly remember this conversation my brother and I had, and we were saying, Oh man, I can't wait till the technology for special effects makes it possible to do a ghostwriter movie. I would give anything to see a ghostwriter movie. How cool would that be? Fast forward to 2007 and we finally get a ghostwriter movie. And I think there, there's two things about this film that make it even watching it to, to prep for our conversation and, and to try and give this an open-minded review, I think. And to your point, it's not the worst superhero or comic book movie I've ever seen. It's really not. I think my expectations for what a ghost writer movie could have been make me a lot harder on this film, I think, than is maybe even fair, to be honest. But I will say, one of the things that, drew me to the comic and to the character back when I first got introduced to that was there was this gritty uh the crime ridden city and ghost rider through the dirty streets burning up the souls of sinners you know there was this this dark this darkness to it mm-hmm that I always really enjoyed. And it was one of the things that I really wanted to see brought to screen. I felt the same way at that time about Punisher. Cause I used to read the Punisher comics a little yeah. bit. And I always held out hope for like a really good iteration of, of Punisher on screen. And we've gotten some since then. 
this felt a little and uh, you know they were making this film for a family audience so the kids could watch mm -hmm. it so it wasn't going to be early 80s crime ridden new york you know what i mean like they, they, that wasn't the story they were trying to tell here for for the audience that they were trying to appeal to yeah. so it lacked some of that edge that i had always wanted to see and then this movie is a lot of cgi oh it is yes it's a lot of cgi which i think also adds to that it's it looks too polished too uh -huh. cgi too yeah for my taste for what i would want from this story but i think at the time that was what was this is part of that first wave of when cgi when more things were possible with computer graphics all of a sudden you had filmmakers that went crazy yes with doing everything cgi nothing practical yeah, too much of that. And it was like, whoa, you know, the uncanny valley was this gaping chasm. And I think now with the Mar with the MCU, I think gotten more well, the technology has also continued to progress. And also got I think we've gotten a little more used to the idea of like a film that's almost entirely CGI. Uh -huh. Um, but yeah, definitely for this film. It's a lot of CG. It's a lot of CGI. <laughs> yes. Which, you know, yeah. it's not that appealing to me, but I think Nicolas Cage looks great. Yeah. yeah. He's in great shape here. I think he gives a great performance. It's, he's not, he's not the one that's hamming it up in this movie. <laughs> that's Wes Bentley. Yes. That's <laughs> Wes Bentley. You know, and, and I've talked a bit. I haven't actually reviewed American Beauty yet on the show, but that was where, when I first discovered Wes Bentley, and I was very mm -hmm. impressed with his work in American Beauty, and I had some hopes for where his career would go. I think he's starting to come back. He landed on that Yellowstone show. I think that's probably a good place for him to be. Yeah, he's not very good. I mean, that's the weakest performance, hands down, of the film. You know, Peter Fonda... Uh, is way more effective and is doing way less um, in, you know, playing the devil. So I was kind of like, can't we have more of him and less of yeah. Wesley in this movie? I agree. Yeah. The others are doing their dark. I mean, Sam Elliott's doing his thing. I, oh, I, I love Sam Elliott. I really like Donald Logue as well. He's a character actor yeah. that I love to see and he's in this and I think he's great. Yeah. He, did, he probably doesn't get enough screen time. He's it's kind of, it's interesting how he works. He, he's kind of like uh, the John C. Riley in Days of Thunder, Tom Cruise. Yeah. That's what, what he's doing. And he's always kind of like trying to take care of Cage. And like, he doesn't know about about this other pact with the devil thing. <laughs> That's the backstory. I, I think the, you know, the, the opening sequence and, the younger version of him. I think all of that is handled well. That's that's often often to me a highlight in some of these superhero movies is is that sequence. But then yeah, Cage comes in and you know I I think he was having fun with it. But yeah, I I now I'm sort of gaining it a little bit because what you're describing to me, I think somebody like Alex Proyas could have taken that material uh, and like what he did with with the Crow and Dark City. 
he would have been a good director for this. And if they had gone right. for uh, a solid R film and made it dark, I think this was still a decade where the studios were clinging on to power and they were really trying to like eat even the horror movies and, and, and the comedies, they tried to make PG 13. Yeah. They were very afraid of an R rating. Uh, and there were the movies for made for adults were few and far between. And certainly the idea of um, comic book films that are made for adults that, that was unheard of. That's sort of the decade after that, that started to come in a little bit more with the, you know, um, the Logans and uh, to a certain certain extent Deadpool, but not not completely. Yeah, Watchmen. Watchmen, yeah, Watchmen's another great example of that, where they were they weren't afraid to to go darker with it and and go for the R rating and realize and and those younger people are going to grow up and they are going to be you know watching these movies at some point. So I feel like yeah, it's probably studio decisions. Uh, I don't know that much about this Mark Steven Johnson who, who wrote it and directed it. Just looking up his filmography here, looks like he has more credits as a writer than anything else. Yeah, I mean, he did the screenplay for the Daredevil movie. He was connected to the grumpy old men movies in the 90s. Right. So, yeah, I, I just don't think this, was, this wasn't this was a director who probably had a whole lot of say. He was, I'm sure he was hired by the studio to... Uh, to make this film and was very much the studio. Had, I, I, it shows. Yeah. 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 I think watching this, it's yeah. That is something that just hits you right away. It's like, okay, this is the studio wanted this a certain way mm -hmm. and but, they wanted this wider demographic and they wanted it to be, yeah. you know, PG. This is the Spider-Man yeah. audience we're trying to get in, you know, right. um, and let's see if we get those numbers, which they, they couldn't. But looking at it now, do you think it's as bad as its reputation? Oh, that's a great question. If I put aside if if I put aside what I know about the ghost writer character outside of this film, if I just go what I'm seeing on the screen, it's probably not as bad as we've all been making it out to be. <laughs> there are, there are some positive things in here. Yeah. I do think as we kind of talked about a little bit, like if they had just had Mephistopheles and just cut out the hidden, the other villains, and just had the one villain and really yeah. let him be villainous, yeah. this would work a lot better. Yeah, fair enough. I don't have much more to say about it. I don't know if we're... I don't either. Rest of this, but, <laughs> no, I, 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 I think, you know, I think there's a, a, a chance in the future we're going to be talking about um, a film that I, on another podcast, which I've already reviewed on this one, and I think I had a lot of baggage with my experience mm. of the source material and I maybe didn't give the movie a fair shake. So I completely 
understand. And, and I think you are giving this a fair shake, by the way. I'm, uh, I'm trying. You know, I'm really trying. You are. It's it's tough <laughs> when, when you have a love for the source material and you see what they do, something that is just kind of not the right thing with the film version. I think this hit me. I was watching a lot of these when uh, um, when I had been been homesick, and mm. I, I guess it just felt okay. I it just it was okay. Maybe I was in a more forgiving mood or something. Maybe I <laughs> put this on in two years. I'll be like, really? I said nice things to say about Ghost Rider. What was I on? <laughs> <laughs> See it, judge for yourself. I guess. And yes. But yeah. If you can divorce yourself from expectations surrounding the source material, you might have a better time with this. If you have no expectations for this movie, you're going to have fun. (laughs) (laughs) That's a quote on the back of the Blu-ray shelf-shedding movie show. (laughs) Have no expectations and you'll have fun. Can I talk to Lula? You are not going to see him ever. Why, I'd go the far end of the world for you, baby. A man can't ask for more than that. You move me, Sal. You really do. You want me to shoot Sailor in the brains with a gun? Uh oh. I didn't have much parental guidance. Baby, you better run me back to the hotel. You got me hotter in Georgia asphalt. This whole world wild and hard and weird on top. So probably your enjoyment of wild at heart, a lot of it could be based on your feelings about one David Lynch. I think for naively for a little while there, I I thought that the entire world thinks the way that I do, that the man is an absolute genius, where I get something interesting and new from every viewing of his like full-on Lynch films. He has a, a few movies in his canon which are not very Lynchian. The Elephant Man and the straight story would be the, the the two most well he has some eccentric moments in there they're the least lynching of his films but we are looking at a, a full-on height of his career lynching film with wild at heart palm d'or winner at the con film festival and this movie has everything in it 
including the kitchen sink, as, as you would expect. We have Sailor and Lula, so uh, played by Nicolas Cage, and uh, young Laura Dern, who is very much David Lynch's muse at this time of his career, and I think might arguably, we might say that's still the case. And they end up running away from Lula's mom, played in an Academy Award-nominated performance by Diane Ladd, Laura Dern's actual mother. They they worked together, you know, on a couple movies in a row and and got some Oscar nominations between the two of them as a result of that. So, uh, and they're dealing with, as IMDb describes, a variety of weirdos who are been hired to kill Sailor. And essentially, the the reasons for this this hatred that Diane Ladd has for Nicolas Cage. Uh, there's a little bit of this this crime element and some things that he had witnessed. Uh, I think she she also tries to kind of come on to him and gets rejected too. It's it's a very complex relationship. It's a complex performance, but it's not the only complex performance in this movie. I. I don't know if I have blinders when it comes to Mr. Lynch. <clears throat> I, I certainly get <clears throat> the criticisms, uh, you know, um, of him, but I just have a, a great time watching this craziness play out. I mean, we, we have Cage sings Elvis and he becomes Elvis. And there's a certain song that Laura Dern wants to sing to him. And he says, no, I'm, I promised that will be only to the woman I marry that I will sing that song. We we have that. We have a Wizard of Oz plot going along where we, we keep kind of seeing Diane Ladd as uh, the Wicked Witch of the West trailing after them. And we have like some really dark flashbacks. We have a, a strange story which features uh, eccentric character actor Crispin Glover. We, we have Willem Dafoe in full-on, uncomfortable, creepy, bank robber, rapey mode that's just not... There's another guy, like Gandolfini, I guess. Like I think he's a super nice guy, but he plays some of the biggest creeps you've ever seen. And this is, this is up there. I, I guess I admire where they go. It's uninhibited. It is out there. The people that I have reviewed David Lynch films with or when I've been a guest on other shows who don't like David Lynch... Their argument against him is that the, these movies are a puzzle that nobody can solve because there is no answer, that he is just throwing stuff at us and he is just messing with us and making it seem like he's this really deep, important filmmaker and that he may be a little bit more shallow than he's given credit for. And maybe that's true. I don't know, but I am having so much fun with these movies and trying and still trying to figure them out and just going scene to scene and watching something that's super light juxtaposed with something which is as dark as you can possibly get. And I really do uh, go for it. Cage goes for it. And like the first scene is so big. Like there's there's no kind of build up to anything. It that, no. that first scene is extremely violent and emotions aplenty in this is like okay, we're in for a different type of ride here. And I do kind of admire like Laura Dern. And the question that might be asked is, it, is she or her character kind of exploited in the film or not? But she, she goes all out. And there's some pretty graphic 
sex scenes and 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 she again that scene with Willem Dafoe were just so uncomfortable and she plays that so so well so I have to admire her performance and that like she went there she was still a pretty young actor but I mean like her mom's agreeing to be in part of the same movie too so I and I I, I don't know I, so I I sense that I've never heard anything where she's felt exploited or not safe on a David Lynch set and She's worked with him a lot over the years. So, but I, I wonder, I guess maybe my 2022 radar was up a little bit more than other viewings with this one. Is some of the stuff with her backstory and how in her backstory there was this rape and the thing with an uncle and an abortion. Is that being treated respectfully enough by Lynch as a writer-director or not? And that's just like a very small element of a ton of other things going on in this movie. I feel like easily you could have a whole podcast on this one. And I don't think we'll, even then we would get to, to everything. A lot of actors I really like some were Lynch regulars that I, I want, wanted to mention kind of this, uh, Isabella Rossellini is kind of a strange role here. And again, we're having most, some of the actors from blue velvet from a few years ago show up. I always like seeing Harry Dean Stanton. Just that guy, his appearance in movies just comforts me. Like his character is not, not treated well there. And he's, I think he's married to Diane Ladd's character. And then he's one of the people kind of trying to track them down. But he's, he's a nicer person than this, we have these hired assassins. And these other just Grace Zabriskie who plays some of the weirdest characters in Lynch things and in Twin Peaks is in there. Sherilyn Fenn shows up as a victim of a car crash. I mean, he, he's just bringing all of his regular people in here for these these little moments and these little scenes combined with like this this kind of main story about this kind of pre-natural born killers couple trying to trying to get away from uh, from others. Again, long-winded, rambling synopsis of this, but my, <laughs> my thumb is is way up. I don't know if it should be. But that's just how I feel about it. And I'm a Lynch fan. And so, but I'm always open to hearing another opinion. So <laughs> maybe another opinion right now. So go ahead. <laughs> I am going to give you another opinion right now. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, full disclosure, I am one of those people, not a Lynch fan. Yeah. And never have been. And I can remember like as a teenager, trying like the like twin peaks i've tried watching i tried over the years watching the pilot on three separate occasions and could not get through it through the um just even the pilot even the pilot i was just out i just i and i tried and and there's um there's a handful of lynch films that i over the years have seen from start to finish and didn't like (laughs) this being one of them i saw this as a teenager and didn't like it and and some films that i actually had to like turn off over the years like i I kept trying because he's one of those polarizing filmmakers that people love him or people really don't like it Uh i i don't know that i've ever talked with someone who's totally neutral with lynch yeah yeah, he, I I can't think of yeah, one person, true. yeah, that I've ever talked to that's you know, neutral I, yeah. in the middle. Oh. 
It's, it's either, always right? one end or the other. It's either he's my favorite filmmaker or no, I he's, I can't he's, stand it. He's so overrated. Or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody's the worst or that he's untalented, but they they have claimed he's overrated. I I have heard that. Yeah. You know, and and this is again, film is highly subjective. We all have our own personal tastes. And I'm not going to say that the man has no talent. That would be disingenuous. But he's definitely not my thing. And and something that really struck me rewatching Wild at Heart for the first time in many, 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 many years was I, I think especially for a, a Lynch film like this, part of it is is the sense of humor that I can tell that there's parts of this film that are intended to be funny. I just don't find them funny. <laughs> it just doesn't, the humor of the film just doesn't sync with my sense of humor and what I find humorous. And so we're already at like a, a disadvantage here <laughs> for me to be able to connect with it. Cause the intention is for some of this stuff to be funny. It's humorous and it's just not funny to me. So I will say, I tried to be as open as I possibly could because I, I think that's, you know, I mean, that's what podcasts like this are about, right? Yeah. So so even though Lynch is definitely not my thing, I, I try, okay, what what are the positives in here? There's some great settings in this, you know, and the road trip. I love a highway. And characters on a highway so that's always like th those types of scenes mm -hmm. are appealing to me some great is a great soundtrack yes yeah always we great we music in this film nickel the you know nicholas cage singing in the club that first time i thought was very charming great costumes and and all of all of the actors in this are giving great performances for what this script what this filmmaker is asking of them for this type of film and the tone of it and there's a great cast it's stacked it is yes for that time yeah. but for me the writing doesn't work so it's one of those i can recognize that this is a great cast and that they gave this their all and that this is what Lynch intended. And for people who, who are feeling his, his vibe and his style and his type of storytelling that I could see why this would work for folks. It just doesn't work for me, but that's just me, you know? So. And, that, and that's fair enough. I think, there are kind of four four movies that I see as being kind of the most Lynchian. And by the way, you have you and those who have that opinion, you're in good company. Roger Ebert would regularly give one star <laughs> to a lot of his most famous movies, including uh, at least three of the ones that I'm. And then there was one that he actually ended up enjoying in the end. But um, Blue Velvet, big time. And which is a better movie, I think, than Wild at Heart. And it was kind of in the shadow of Blue Velvet a little bit. Lost Highway and then Mulholland Drive. Those, If you look at those ones, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, that's also a really out there. But it's kind of 
like the movie mixed in prequel to the TV series. And so there's a lot of wild stuff in that one too. But th those four movies are kind of part of that, you know, kind of frustrating experience where you're trying to figure things out. It seemed like those who didn't like Lynch started to go along with Mulholland Drive. Somehow of all of the films that he had done, that's the one that had the best reception out of all of them. It seems like it kind of in Europe and film festivals, they love Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart obviously did did very well. Yet I, I don't think you'll ever and and Lynch doesn't explain his movies. That he he really doesn't. He's just like it's out there for people to interpret. I feel like he's really interested in art. Uh he's really interested in music. And he also does film as well. And he likes to just put things out there and let the audience kind of go with it. Part of me kind of admires that and that he's somebody who's been able to get away with that. When so many, we just talked about a movie that was completely controlled by the studio. And I, I think, you know, as much as I'd said nice things about Ghost Rider, there's nothing in there that's as interesting or as exciting as any of these strange little vignettes that we, we see in Wild at Heart. I get why if it's not, if it's not your thing, it's really not your thing. And that's okay. I did. You mentioned the music, and I, I just thought we, in the last week or so we we lost Angelo uh, Badalmenti, I believe is I always mispronounce his last name there, who was his longtime collaborator, going back to Blue Velvet music, and created the like the famous Laura's theme for Twin Peaks, which is just to me a beautiful piece of music. It had he had the the Lynch sensibility. David Lynch is a character like you. You listen to him talk, and he's like a a G Willikers, oh gosh darn it type of guy, uh, in how he talks. He's like out of a a 1950s sitcom or something like that. But in his writing, somehow it's like he works out his demons or something, because then he has some really nasty, horrible, exploitative stuff in his films that I don't hear him ever saying. You know, when he's just being interviewed or having a conversation or any of that. But this composer was able to kind of get that epic dramatic sound and then go into some really dark, tragic sounding music and then go into something that was really jazzy, all mm -hmm. kind of in the same piece. And it's, it's a loss. It's a unique talent. I think even some people who don't like David Lynch films really appreciate the soundtracks and the music behind his films there. So just just wanted to do a bit of a shout out there too. And yeah, I again I think, you know, we'll we can keep talking about it, but I think it will be in different places. <laughs> uh, for sure. I did want your take though. Do you feel that the stuff connected to to Lula's background is treated appropriately or do you think it was just I'm gonna do put something in this movie and it was 1990, probably filmed in 89. So it was shocking to talking about to talk about an abortion and incest and these things. Is he doing that just for shock value, or do you feel like he he treats that material appropriately, or is Laura Dern just such a great actor that she makes it seem like he treats it sensitively and appropriately? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. It's. The tone of that scene 
is kind of weird because uh-huh. I, I think Laura Dern's physical performance, I I think gives it the weight that it deserves, but her costuming is very cartoonish. So then you're like, okay, am I supposed to be laughing at her or am I supposed to be feeling for this character? You know what I mean? Like it's she's supposed to be quite young. What is she 13 or something? Yeah. She's supposed yeah. to be pretty and young. They have her in. Yeah. Like she had curlers in her hair or something like it's yeah. pajamas. And like and... A, a baby doll kind of yeah. nightgown. It's so it's I think that's Lynch. I mean, I just feel like that is, it is. what he, he does, but does that diminish like into the, the seriousness of what's right. described? And it is a flashback. And I think he's big into dreams and sometimes false memories and maybe right. on the journey that they're on, which is kind of like this romantic heightened adventure. Then, then it's being described through like, I, again, I, I, I kept, and I just hadn't clocked this before, the comparison to Natural Born Killers, another polarizing film, which I'm a fan of, where we're, we're, we see through some horrible stuff about Mallory's character, through flashback done as a, a TV, 80s TV sitcom. So, you know, it, this is a kind of a stylistic choice by these auteur directors like Oliver Stone and the David Lynch. But then when you think about like the, the real life consequences, which I feel right. like, and, and it's not in, in there, because I, I was afraid, because it had been a little while since I saw it, that it was just going to hang there, that this was just some colorful incident that was going to be just part of the film. But it does have a purpose kind of later on um, when we spoilers discover that that Laura Dern is pregnant. But I, I feel like the scene with Defoe later on is where we get the real world danger and consequences of it. Yeah. And he, he often plays and he certainly Mulholland drive is an example of this where he plays of, is that one of the ones you've seen? I have. Yes. Yeah. Where he shows this kind of ideal storybook version of Hollywood. And then he shows the gritty reality of Hollywood in the second half of the film. That's maybe what he's doing with that. He's showing kind of this, cartoonish heightened memory but then like oh this is dangerous and serious and this is what is really happening here it's not the i don't know if it's a comment on growing up through that 1950s kind of superficial lens and this is actually what's really going on and that's what we're going to do at points and that's been my take on him where i i accept those kind of more those goofier sequences because then we do get those kind of horrific, darker moments there. But I still am, am kind of, especially how it's presented early on, I don't think I would have noted it if, when I watched the movie in the 90s, when I was kind of discovering sure. the films. But now I'm paying very close attention, as we all are paying. We probably all, always should have been paying attention, but now we're paying a lot more attention to those those messages, I guess. And Yeah, we have a much greater awareness now. Mm, yes. Than we did in the nineties. Yeah. And there's a lot of things you could, you know, that they got away with in the nineties because, you know, the society was just, we were just less aware. How, how do you feel about kind of the wizard of Oz part? I mean, I, I've heard some people hate it. Some people, some I, people with it. I don't know. It's, and I think 
this goes back to the things about Lynch that are, are difficult for me is that sometimes things like I, like, I'm like, okay, like, no, this is, this is an interesting reference or this is interesting metaphorically or symbolically, but it's the execution, like the way that it's tied in that I'm like, this, this feels tacked on to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's that's something that I kind of I, I run up against with his films, the ones that I've actually been able to sit through and watch from yeah. start to finish. Yeah. <laughs> Was that you know, I, I'm kinda like, okay, yeah, Wizard of Oz. Oh okay, I'm kinda with you there. And then it's it's just the way like some of the points where it's thrown in, it does make sense. And then some other scenes I'm kinda like I'm not sure why now. So hmm. it's, I, it's again, one of those things I can see where someone who's, whose taste and sensibilities are more aligned with Lynch enjoying it and, and like loving that aspect of the movie. I can, I can get that for me. It feels kind of tacked on, but I, like there's something there. It just doesn't yeah. quite work for me, but that sequence where Cage is just getting the crap beat out of him, and the Good Witch appears, and like Laura Laura Palmer mm-hmm. shows up here, uh, Cheryl Lee, in extended cameo playing the Good Witch. There, I I guess I I've, I've always liked that, but that's just again that's another one out of fairness to those who don't like the movie or aren't going along with it. That it's already been too much. Why you know? <laughs> But you've established the Wicked Witch of the West, so you have right. You know, he needs to you need to get this in here somewhere. But no, I think that makes sense. And at that point in the film, you need something that is gonna get Sailor back. Yeah. Yeah, you no, know, I mean you know, it, it's, it's a weird decision that he walks away from this, but then comes back to it and yeah, this one, I mean, it, it, it has the romance, and then we get the song. I mean, you know, I, I, I you've gone through all these weird <laughs> things, and you kind of get this weird feel-good ending <laughs> from from David Lynch here that, you, I mean, you don't always or, or often get that towards the end of his films there. So I, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting. I mean, it's, the reason I like having it in this episode is it shows the risks that Cage as an actor was taking at this time too. He wasn't, he wasn't kind of sticking to one, one genre or he wasn't picking a roles that were anybody would be advising him to take. I mean, it's just the the variety of stuff he did in the eighties. And that's why kind of in the nineties, I had him pegged as one of the, the best actors. And I think he was even entertainment weekly did this thing on the 20th, five best male actors and did this piece and, and cage was right in there with, you know, a bunch of kind of like the, the who's who of the, of the, of 1990s film. And it's just interesting. I, I kind of started to believe the downfall of cage for a bit. Mm. And so I'd really kind of hang on to the raising Arizona's and the wild at hearts and, 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 and some of these, some of these films that he was doing that, you know, 
where he was just a bit bit of an outsider or he was like kind of this southern rebel without a cause type of thing and i think it um and so maybe this is another nostalgia one and it was just kind of at the point when I was realizing that movies can be more than that. It doesn't have to be a straight line. It doesn't have to be a formula. We talked about Honeymoon in Vegas, which feels very formulaic. This is also a romantic movie uh, and it's a love story, but it's done in a, a way that nobody else would ever do. Like Lynch, if nothing else, you know, you've seen a Lynch film. Like nobody else is doing. This is would, true. Would, would dare tell the story. There's no the question. story. <laughs> this way and so many great things in it but yeah this time i mean willem dafoe with that look and like those awful teeth and now that was kind of to me that i clocked as like this time around that was almost the best performance for me i know there's there's some others that are perhaps are a little bit more challenging but i just that that one really kind of stayed with me uh on this viewing of, of wild at heart and well i can tell you that the first time i saw this once upon a time in the 90s you know, and I, I didn't enjoy it, but I, over the years, like the one thing that I really remembered, like the one uh-huh. sequence that really stuck with me was that scene with Willem Dafoe and his performance. Because yeah. it's, oh. yeah. it's so, he is so menacing and the character is so disgusting yeah. and the way that it's shot the you know the choice of close-ups and it's yeah it's it's an intense scene it's one that sticks with you for sure and the fact that poor nicholas cage has to find out that laura dern's pregnant through him right is another lynch lynch can write some pretty deplorable disgusting horrible characters and i mean you know give dennis hopper and uh in blue velvet and you know robert blake in in uh in lost highway and, and there's lots of examples of that and so I, I i feel like we're gonna be in very different places with points with this one but that's what's gonna I, make it yeah well and i when i was assigning my points i i tried i mean definitely films that i loved got more points just because yeah, they have to i mean i i had to yeah uh but i i did i didn't lowball the other ones as much as I, you know, if you, if you had asked me to do this 10, 15 years ago, I would have been merciless. Zero. <laughs> I'd be hearing some zeros. Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't do that. I, I no, <clears throat> there's some merit in these films, even though they're not my thing. Yeah. I can recognize that, that there is some merit that other people enjoy this. There's a reason why other people enjoy this. We just have different tastes where this is concerned, and that's okay. Different yeah. strokes for different folks. Treat me like a Treat me mean and cruel, but love me. Break my faithful
Carmelita, thank you for coming back on the show. You know you'll always be welcome, but I also know you have about a thousand other podcasts <laughs> that you're that you guest on. And I always I'm always kind of like, okay, I, I want to give you a bit of time in between because six movies, I think most of the podcasts you do, you'd have one or maybe two that you'd have to look at. So it, it is a time commitment and I appreciate that you've been willing to do this again. And no, Fox it's such a joy, Jason. It's I'm so happy to come back. And and yes, it's six films, but you know, I mean it's fun. I have a good time. I have a good time watching the films and and thinking about my points. And it's it's a joy. It's a joy to prepare to come onto the shelf shutting movie show. It's a joy to talk movies with you. So and I've also appreciated and I always appreciate your support of the show, you know. There's an episode out, you'll like it, or you'll just kind of share it out there a little bit just to, to broaden the audience. Just all, all those nice people that have kind of met through that kind of Twitter verse, movie Twitter verse there. It's been uh, it's been great, but I, I appreciate you coming back and and doing several shows here. Along oh, thank you. All right, time to uh, award some points, and then one of these movies has to leave my uh, movie collection here. So. And I feel like this is this is going to be interesting. I don't know where we're going <laughs> to go, so I'm kind of excited about this. But one, we'll start off with one I I know we agree with. I don't know if our points will be similar, but eight millimeter. How many points did you give it? Thirteen. Then we went to honeymoon in Vegas. Four. And then Valley Girl. Twenty. Bad Lieutenant. Port of Call. New Orleans. Twelve. And then Ghost Rider. Five. And finally, Wild at Heart. Six. I actually gave one more point to eight millimeter. I gave it 14 points. Honeymoon in Vegas, I gave nine points to. And then you might be mad at me a little bit here with Valley Girl. <laughs> no, not eight, at all. I gave it eight points there. So That's maybe okay. a little bit less generous. I was, again, trying to balance some things out. I didn't have as much of a history or the nostalgia for yes. it as I did for for honeymoon in Vegas, then ten points for Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. It jumped up in my esteem. I wasn't quite sure where it was going to kind of land here for me. We were exactly the same with Ghost Rider, five points as well. Nice. I it. So, and then Wild at Heart, Wild at Heart, as you expect, I gave more points to. I I gave fourteen points. I couldn't decide between uh, it and eight millimeter, so I I gave them the same number of points. Where where we're at with totals, and it is it is very very spread out. Valley Girl has the most points with twenty eight. Because I loaded by, it up. <laughs> yeah, all good. Followed by eight millimeter with twenty seven points, so very very close at the top there. Then third place went to the Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans, with twenty two points. Fourth place, and this is where I had I bumped up Wild at Heart with, with my 14, so he got 20 points. And then Honeymoon in Vegas, fifth place with 13, and Ghost Rider at 10. So Ghost Rider, and maybe the movie that had the, the worst reputation, but I don't think we were as hard on it as some people would have been. But that's the one with the lowest number of points. What do you, would you like me to do with uh, this copy of Ghost Rider? Well... We're we're recording this around the holiday season. Gift it. Maybe if there's a gift exchange or if you know somebody that would enjoy it, give it as a gift this holiday season. Great idea. Great idea. <laughs> no, I'm I'm glad how this worked out. I'm glad that you gave Wild at Heart more points because it is a movie that you really enjoy. Cause I, I knew I would knew I was going much lower on it than you would. And so I was like, I hope if he really loves this movie. 
<laughs> he'll like give it a lot of points. I hope he's not counting on me to make up the difference. <laughs> I, I, I I'm glad know. it worked out. I don't know why. I must be kind of tuning into your your taste a little bit more. I had this feeling that you wouldn't like Wild at Heart, and I, I was pretty certain that you'd love Valley Girl. And I, I I didn't I didn't know that you wouldn't have seen Bad Lieutenant before. I was pretty certain mm-hmm. there was one that you would enjoy. That was kind of uh, kind of fun and interesting that it was one that you had avoided and then had such a great reaction to. So, yeah, it, uh, I, I think this turned out well. So thank you again for being on the show. I should do shout-outs. Matt Bledsoe's show, uh, Film Feast, I'll always mention first when you're here because uh, you're, you're on that, that show a lot, and uh, I, I, just, uh, I just enjoy that and one. And it's I, awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm caught up. I've watched every – or watched – listened to every uh, – one of his episodes and yeah i would recommend people check out the the jackie brown episode that you were on recently it's it's a long one but <laughs> it's it's a really interesting discussion and you get three varied opinions on not as much on jackie brown i think you all love jackie brown but just on tarantino himself and it's it's kind of a fun friends talking about uh, an interesting filmmaker. So that, that was a great episode. Um, oh, thank you. Of course, rank and review. At the time we've recorded it, a new episode dropped where I he had five different guests and I was doing a review of a recent horror movie, Barbarian. Oh, so nice. People should check uh, that episode out of uh, rank and review. And uh, then um, A Lifetime of Hallmark. And of course, Lindsay's show, Schlock and Awe. I was, was just honored to have Lindsay on my show recently and we were talking about the great jack lemon and a lot yeah it's a great that. episode i really enjoyed that yeah, yeah thanks for listening to that one and uh yeah we yeah we we enjoyed that one so again just i feel like the the world has opened up to a, a variety of interesting guests and i always want to pay people back by being on their shows too and shouting their shows out at the end so please uh support these independent podcasters that are just doing it for the love of film. That's, that's all that we're doing that, you know, this isn't our job. This isn't, you know, something that it's, it's a money losing operation essentially, but it's (laughs) a labor of love. It's a labor of love. Absolutely. So, (laughs) and just folks, we're getting into a really exciting time. There's lots of interesting movies out there and lots of interesting movies that you can just kind of watch at home and discover some old, older ones too. Just keep supporting the movies. It's an interesting time for cinema in general and interesting times in every every way. So as I always say, also at the end of the show, just be kind and be safe uh, and uh, just take care of one another. Thanks for uh, listening to this episode.